Welcome back. Lights Out Podcast. Very excited tonight. My favorite part, my, everybody's favorite part of what we do, the deep dive. Yes, yes, we got deep dive time. Um, and this is you know, especially, you know, special to me. We're going into another a guy like myself, an old school guy, a guy who started back in the 90s, man. So we're a real fighter. Um, and not only a real fighter, but a real Indiana fighter. I know it seems like uh, we're partial to these guys, and we are, so deal with it. Um, <laughs> very happy to have a uh, legend of the sport, Mr. Aaron Riley. How you doing, brother? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm doing well, Chris. It's good to be here with you all tonight. Yeah, good to see you, man. Ain't seen you in a while. So, um, so Chris, I, don't, I don't see anybody, though. All I see is these two guys. So, Chris, you, are we man. considering <laughs> Evansville, Indiana? I mean, are we going to say it's Kentucky? <laughs> <laughs> you have Karen, he's from there. I mean, what do, what do you think? I think it's Kentucky, bro. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got to ask a, a, more of a native from that, from that area. I don't know. <laughs> so, it Aaron. Sounds, uh, it sounds like the guy from Chicago is dishing out some disrespect there. We got a- you, Aaron, Aaron is from Tell City, to be clear Tell about Tell City. <laughs> wow. The guy from Chicago has got about five hours of distance between him and Aaron Riley, and I'm more than comfortable talking a lot of smack from from this, you know, my my apartment. <laughs> All I know is I had one fight in Tail City, and uh, this dislocated, separated shoulders from that. So I don't, I don't want to go back to your place, I man. I didn't have good memories there. <laughs> so, you had an awesome finish that night, though, if I remember I, right. I appreciate it, but I I, he, I might have won the battle, but he won the war. You know, it was twenty <laughs> years later, and I'm still this. <laughs> So, so Aaron, just kind of like a, a heads up, and uh, we're going to kind of take a surgical view of your career. And Chris, I, and Miguel, we're all historians. And Chris, I, and Miguel, before this podcast even existed, we'd all nerd out with this little trivia, and it would the conversations would go down pathways that most people wouldn't talk about. But that's what kind of interested us, which is why Miguel and I are using our friendship with Chris to take up more time with yourself that we would normally not be able to afford. <laughs> to, liter- to literally lure people on. Yes. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Chris, Chris and, is and, fun. Chris well, is like, like the... You guys have a well-oiled machine here because you're, you're pulling people in. Here I am, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start with, like, what I like to do like, with your early fights is I like to kind of listen to the commentary. And they mentioned that you're a Golden Gloves champion. Um, were you Golden Gloves novice or advanced for the state of Indiana? Okay, yeah. Um, that's funny because that actually came a little later in my MMA career. I mean, I had already had, I don't know, five or six fights before I started getting into Golden Gloves. But, yeah, I, um, I boxed in the novice, novice division. Um, I had... Yeah, I boxed in novice division. I boxed. It was a boxing club that was. It was weird. It was out of Kentucky, but it was associated with an Indiana club. So somehow or another, we were we were able to be. We were all like kind of lumped together as as an Indiana club. It worked for us. And um, yeah, I boxed Golden Gloves my in 1999. I won Golden Gloves at my. That was my senior year in high school. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was awesome, man. I. Uh, yeah, I won 165 novice uh, novice class uh, Indiana Golden Gloves uh, state title that year. Now, yeah. Aaron, and that doesn't hurt being in high school and being a Golden Gloves champ. That probably makes you kind of the, the big deal there, does it not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it definitely uh, it got a little respect, I would say, for sure, yeah. <laughs> 
So, so the key thing that I took away from what you just said was you were a senior in high school, but you had a bunch of fights up until that point, And you, you know, you, you were well seasoned fighter before you even entered golden gloves in terms of MMA. Let, let me just uh, jump in here and, and mention that this podcast is also an official 50 fight club member podcast Ooh, here. There's, there's it's true. This guy yeah. doesn't have official 50 fights on sure dog. But trust me, he's got 50 fights. So anyway, <laughs> take it away, bro. So you were Southpaw. You had phenomenal cardio. Those were the two things that I, I, I can honestly say that I've taken away from watching the totality of your career. But that cardio was even – it was there even, like, as your beginning fights, which I think you were 16 years old when you made a, your, your professional debut for Hook and Shoot. Man. Um, how does that happen? How do you meet Jeff Osborne? How do you convince your parents in order to fight for Jeff as a 16-year-old child? Yeah, so let's see. Um, here's, here's like the quick synopsis, I guess. So I see UFC as a 12-year-old kid. Um, you know, I would read Black Belt Magazine, the whole thing. Um, you know, that's how I became aware of UFC uh, was Black Belt Magazine. I, I tune in, I watch them. Um, I was doing judo at the time. I had started out with like, you know, Taekwondo, like every other kid in America. Taekwondo was really big in like the, the not, early 90s, I would say. Like uh, the 90s was was like the, like that was the in martial art, you know, whatever. Um, I, I, I started with that. I moved into judo. Um, see ads for UFC watch the first UFC and then after I see it I just decide hey that's what I want to do when I grow up I mean I'm 12 and I decide this it's just like <laughs> bang that is my calling in life I just right then and there um I uh let's see um and then I find out about hook and shoot I hear about hook and shoot there was a uh there was a kid at my school that was just completely wild about pro wrestling he actually went and watched the first hook and shoot and then I see him at school and he's giving me this whole rundown. He shows me the program from the first hook and shoot. And I was like, holy hell, this is, this is people that actually fought in UFC as, as alternates and some different things. I think maybe Gary Myers was maybe in the very first hook and shoot. Too. I can't remember. Yeah. So there were, there were some guys who I recognized them from early, like earlier fighting <laughs> events. They were on pay-per-view at that time. And, you know, I'm, I, here I am like a uh, you know, sophomore in high school. I think freshman in high school and I'm seeing this, I'm like, wow, this show out of like Boonville or Evansville, this, this hook and shoot show, it, it's really like doing big things or they're on the map. They're getting people from pay-per-view that are fighting on this show. So I, um, let's see. I mean, I, I've become aware of hook and shoot. Um, there's a, there, I go to a grappling match that's taken place um, in Evansville and um I, I get beat by one point in the grappling match by a guy that that's out of Scott Sullivan's uh, uh, kickboxing and MMA gym. And um, that infuriated me. That just, that just, oh, that just ate me alive, man. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I'm like a, I'm like a 14 year old kid, 14 or 15 year old kid. And I got beat by an adult, but it still, it just burns me, man. So <laughs> I, I joined Scott's, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gym, and that's where I meet Jeff Osborne and find out more that Hook and Shoot is promoted out of Evansville, and it's like, oh, wow, I've got to get into this Hook and Shoot show. 
Okay. So, so, so a little historian touch. May eleventh, nineteen ninety six, is the first hook and shoot. So it yep. did feature wow. Gary. It did feature Gary Myers taking on Nick Starks in the main event. I yep. think uh, one of the UFC guys that uh, that you may be referring to that also fought on the shows from the early days was Gaza Kalman. Gaza, yeah. Um, so that's a little bit of the wrap up. But yeah, they're starting to throw those types of names around. And Jeff had going. That first hook and shoot was in a bar. And from there, they moved to the wood paneled room, you know, so they were moving on up from the very beginning. <laughs> I love it. So were your parents real apprehensive initially in regards to your fighting for Jeff? You know what? My dad, my mom and dad were like, they had split up a little while before this, uh, you know, like they were divorced. But it was funny. My dad was like more apprehensive. My mom was just like, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll, you know, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she just didn't have a problem with it at all. And then looking hard back woman. years later, that's a hard woman, man. Yeah, dude. Like she used to. Yeah, but she used to train too. She used to do judo, and she used nice. to train. And I mean, man, my mom. When I first went to Scott Sullivan's, she saw the grappling and and was just like, "Hey, that cool. I I, I think that'd be fun too. I know some judo, so I'm, so she just kind of. I think she just jumped out there and started grappling with people. She was not afraid. I mean. I think all my fighting spirit, like a lot of it comes from my mom, man. She's kind of fearless. Awesome. That's awesome. So in your in your first fight, you actually have a submission, a heel hook submission victory over Chris Malgari. So, yeah, Malgari, I think. Malgari, I believe is how they say it. Malgari. So a heel hook isn't something that is easily learned. Like you're not going to watch it, learn that off of VHS tapes. Where were you training jujitsu? Uh well, I was training at Scott Sullivan's, but uh, okay. I, I, when I when I submitted, when I got the submission on Malgeri, uh, here's the whole thing with that. Um, he he, I had wrestling shoes on, and he was attempting a heel hook on me. We kind of got in a battle of legs. Now he started trying to heel hook me, and I didn't know a lot about grappling, but I knew that that was way dangerous because I had wrestling shoes on. He was mm. getting a heel hook on me. And I just grabbed him. I just grabbed him in like a straight leg lock. And still to this day, I'm not quite sure how it happened. I did the, the, the legs. Like it was just like a straight Ken Shamrock style leg lock. And man, I just pulled it with all my might. And I, I like physically, like I just kind of broke his, his like shin boners or dislocated. his yes, And I don't know how I did it. Cause I just grabbed it and pulled it as hard as I could. Uh, cause I was scared to death. He was going to trash my knee. And then I ended up trashing his leg before he trashed my knee. So it was just crazy. And I was in shock because I was 16 and you know, this dude, I think was probably like 24, 25 and him and a guy named Sam Wells, I think they might've even had their own gym. And I was freaked out when I was warming up backstage, I'm watching these guys. Those two came together and they're training together. I had like one of my friends from high school. And another guy that I boxed with and they were my corner men. And then they were just like, Hey man, go out there and give them hell. That was basically their corner advice. And I see these guys warming up and I'm like, man, these they're pummeling. I didn't even know what pummeling was really. Um, wow. They're, they're doing all this stuff and it's, it was freaking me out. So I was like, Oh wow. I, I'm really, I've got a big fight on my hands. And then this guy's trying to heel hook me. I didn't know much, but I've been watching instructional videotapes. I was training myself kind of through instructional videotapes and 
and and the little bit of judo I knew and a little bit of boxing that I I was like kind of work. I mean, so I mean, I really didn't know what was going on in the fight. I knew he was trying to heal <laughs> me. I grabbed him, wrenched on his leg as hard as I could, and just kind of popped it. So remember, what, what year was this? What year was this? 1997. This was uh, July 18th, July 19th, July 17th, 18th, 19th, 1997. It's right in there. Incidentally, wow, incidentally, that was the first hook and shoot I ever attended. Oh, oh, you were at that hook and shoot, Miguel? I didn't realize you were actually at that show. Yeah, I, I, I bought a hotel room. Uh, I worked at a deal with Jeff where I was going to take pictures and stuff like that. And I killed 10 crickets in that hotel room. Ah, so cool. you know, it was a classy it was, place. Yeah, it was classy. an Evansville Deluxe, man. You know, so. yeah, right. like it. <laughs> hey, there's nothing uh, worse than you're, you're warming up in your corners over there going, man, I'm glad I'm not fighting that guy. <laughs> Go yeah, out there and try hard. Son of a I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but Aaron, I had one of those experiences at one of your fights too, was when you fought Eve Edwards in Texas. Yeah. Eve was warming up downstairs in like a what was like a kind of cavernous building and stuff, and yeah. he's he's kicking the side pad, and we all know Eve Edwards now. The kid can kick a little, right? And the sound <laughs> resonated throughout, like you could hear it throughout the whole arena. And it was like, what the hell is that sound? And it was Eve Edwards warming up. I was like, oh shit. Well, <laughs> so anyway, sorry, I, maybe you didn't notice, but I did. Yeah, go, Mike. <laughs> So that night, it was actually a tournament where you lost by knee bar to uh, Mario Roberto. Right. Was he your instructor? It's weird, sort of, because um, I had been training at Scott Sullivan's um, like jujitsu gym about uh, a month or month and a half before this hook and shoot event happened. And I guess Mario was like Scott's instructor. He would fly over from Brazil like twice a year, I think, something like twice a year and stay for like a month at a time. And um, he was Scott's instructor. So it was kind of a strange thing, I guess, looking back on it. Maybe I should have just asked Jeff to put me in like a single fight in, <laughs> in the hook and shoot event. But Jeff, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how it worked out, how it did. Just Jeff ended up putting me in the eight-man tournament. Mario was part of the eight-man tournament. And, of course, nobody in the gym wanted to corner me because, you know, Mario was like the it guy, man. I mean, <laughs> and cornering me against him, it's like, come on. So that's why I really just had, like, people from my hometown as corner people, you know? Wow. Yeah, that uh, – for a little bit of reference, Scott Sullivan was a guy probably, you know – like 10 years ahead of his time, you know, he was a guy who back then had gotten a few fights in Japan. Um, I don't know if it was Pancrazy, was a so, but what he was best known for was a, a, a sport called shoot box or kickbox or shoot box, shoot yeah, box. shoot boxing. And what it is is basically it, it's kickboxing with takedowns. And after a takedown, they stand you back up. And he went over there and like won a fight that he wasn't supposed to win. And, you know, from there, you, you have that professionalism of going to Japan and stuff. And that's where you're bringing in instructors to Evansville and stuff from Brazil and <laughs> stuff. So, you know, you're talking about a guy who's ahead of his time. Uh, you know, he faded out a, a little bit in the early days and stuff like that. But in the early days, it was a beacon. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> I'd like to fast forward to your eighth fight now. And I don't think you've graduated high school. 
at this point, or if you did, it was just after it. Okay. Um, it was in Texas, and you fought Tony Aponte. I'm assuming that was your first plane ticket uh, to a fighting event. It was, and it was about a week after I graduated high school. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. Tony Aponte, for those that don't know, he is a revered trainer today. And he was one of, uh, I think he was one of Hoist's black belts, I, I, I believe. And um, Tito Ortiz was the referee that day. He was. So I, you've had a couple, couple I mean, we're going to get into that. You've had some awesome cornermen. And like, I've, I've taken notes on the most that I could find. Um, how did you line that fight up? And you walked into Tony Aponte's hometown and you walked out with your hand raised in a very close fight. Sorry, I had a little bit of interference here. You said, how did I line that fight up and what else? And you also walked into Tony Aponte's backyard because that crowd was like rabid for him. And you, you somehow got your hand raised that night. And, and Tony is very accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, Jeff, Jeff kind of would get, would get offers for fights. And then he would, you know, he would, he would schedule me for fights. He would ask me, Hey, would you want to do this one? And I was like, yeah, sure. So um, yeah, that was the first time I flew. That was the first time I was ever out of like kind of the tri-state area of, of, you know, Indiana, Kentucky, Illinois. I mean, so it was a major, um, you know, it was like a major change, but I mean, it was, but at the same time, it's the same thing as always climb into a ring, take care of business. So I was up for the challenge. Like, yeah, sure. Jeff, let's go. Um, It was a, uh, he was on, he he was on the card that night as well. That was when I first became aware of Eve Edwards. Um, Eve Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, uh, he matched up against some poor guy and uh, (laughs) caught him in a tie clinch, kneed his teeth out. They fell out on the ground. Tito got uh, like an empty beer cup. Uh, uh, he put the guy's teeth in the beer cup and then kind of <laughs> handed the cup to him after the fight. And it's kind of like, hey, man, thanks for coming out kind of thing. You know, uh, you know. Your, your parting gift. Yeah, yeah. So the the change of environment didn't bother you at all? It, no, I mean, it, it really didn't. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I was just too much of a, you know, I don't know, like, just a, a young kid that just, you know, I, I was just loving every minute of it. You know, I just, I, I was just like, Hey man, it's a ring. I'm just going to go down there and jump in it and, and do my thing. I just, I don't know. Maybe I was just too dumb and it was just super confident. <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't worry about it. I was just ready to go. Now, now what belt were you at that time? Because obviously Tony at that time was very accomplished in jujitsu. Uh, maybe a blue belt. I mean, I don't even know, honestly, I, I didn't train, in a tip in a traditional jujitsu setting. I mean, the first couple of years was just a hodgepodge of just, I mean, I had my judo background, which I trained in judo for about three years. I, I did Indiana state games for judo twice uh, and won those. I mean, but like, it was weird now, the, like, because in my early MMA career, it was kind of like a mixture of I, the judo, the instructional videotapes, and then, like, a smattering of, of jiu-jitsu training from Scott Sullivan before his gym closed. 
you know, I picked up kickboxing uh, and I was doing high school wrestling. It's all just kind of like I said, like kind of a, a mixture of stuff. It wasn't like, and then when I, I don't even know if I had a ranking in jujitsu when I fought Tony Torres. I may have gotten it like after that. I mean, I, I, if I did, I was a blue belt. And the thing about, like, when you look at your record, you can sit here and go, oh, stand up, fight, stand up, fight. You know, when I saw Tony Torres Aponte, when I when I saw that name, I'm like, whoa, you know, because he's he's got a real big gym in Texas and he's still very yeah. relevant even today. So that, yeah. that, that to me, like, that's that's a big win. He was a black belt. You weren't, you know, probably outside of Mario Roberto in your second fight at 16. This was your first true test in terms of, uh, you know, upper echelon guys in jujitsu, you know, in, in, in a fight situation. And, you know, you persevered in his hometown, which yeah. there's no how, way that could have been easy. How did that fight go? Can you recount it? How, how did it go? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can remember, like, you know, it, it uh, I mean, he was definitely a super solid opponent. He had stand. I mean, this was Pancras style with the palm striking. So, you know, well, we weren't cl with close fists, but I mean, he had he had some good striking. Um, we We did hit the mat pretty early on in the fight and. I believe he was going to heel hook me as well. I kind of defended well. I was able to get back up on my feet because I did know about his jiu-jitsu background. I did know he was an accomplished jiu-jitsu guy. So, of course, my strategy was pretty much just to keep him standing. Um, but, uh, like, I think it, it kind of turned to tide because, again, that cardio kind of came into play. I mean, here I am, an 18-year-old kid, and I think he was – I don't know exactly how old Tony was at that point. He, he was – you know, we had some age on me, maybe 10 or 12 years. I mean, he was a little older than me. So I think I wore, I, I like, you know, he started to wear down and I just felt it. Like I just sensed it. Maybe that was, you know, I don't know. That was maybe a little bit of fight maturity, like that I, you know, ahead of my time even. Um, but um, I, I kind of sensed him slowing down. So I started like kind of ratcheting up my pressure in my face. And I remember... I remember catching him with some good, some good palm strikes and kind of rattling him. And I kind of, I either, I threw him down or is off a takedown and I kind of got a knee ride and I gave him a super solid like palm strike to the face from a knee ride position. And I got him really good. And I, and then he reached up and distinctly tapped my leg twice. And then, and then like right as I was hitting him the second time. So I felt those taps. And then I back away from him. I mean, I'm done. He tapped. And then Tito jumps in because he's he didn't really see the finish. Tito's like, oh, kind of like keep going type of thing. And then I'm like, oh, my, like, did you not see it? You know, like, that's what's running through my mind. I'm like, did you not see that? And then so then I look at Tito and I said, he tapped. And then uh, Tito like looks down at him and says, did you tap? And I'm getting in position because I'm getting ready to run up and football kick him. I was going to soccer on him. <laughs> If he said he didn't tap, I was going to kick him right in the head. But um, he said, yeah, I tapped. You can oh, see yeah. the video if you see a video of it. He said he's really frustrated in the face. And he just goes, yeah, I tapped. And then then Tito was like, oh, OK, I didn't see it. And then so they, then they stopped. But yeah, I mean, I was just kind of like, oh, are you? No, dude, don't say you <laughs> tap. But he had honor and he said, yeah, I tapped. And so, you know, we we, we chatted Dude, he was a super, super tough fight. Yeah, he, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I agree. And that crowd, Chris, you got to hear that crowd. Like, 
I'm surprised you got out of there without getting in a few fist fights, Aaron. Honestly, that was there. Were, he had a lot of people there. He had a lot of students um, that were there. I think I spoke to one of the people that was a corner man for him that night. I met up with the guy in Seattle, like three or four years later or something. He was like, man, we just couldn't believe that. We just couldn't believe that <laughs> happened. And like, he, like they said, they brought down like a hundred people from Houston. Oh I think he was like from Houston or something. And yeah. then they had all these people drive down to watch. I think probably, yeah, like 50% of the crowd was there for him. So hundred percent, hundred percent. So your 12th fight, uh, we talked, we interviewed Steve Berger yesterday and the one promoter that honestly looked out for him, for, for Steve consistently was a guy named Brian Madden. And your yeah. 12th, your 12th recorded fight, obviously, it, it might be different. Reality might be different, is okay. against a future UFC veteran, CJ Fernandez, where you yeah. walked away with a draw in CJ's right. hometown. Right. Okay. How does that fight play out? How do you somehow finagle a draw? Okay. Well, the way that here's the thing before the fight, they said, okay, hey, look, guys, it's going to be like a 15 minute fight. Uh, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to go to a decision or do you want to just be declared a draw if there's no decisive winner? And then CJ and I just kind of both looked at each other. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wait a minute. If it, I'm, I'm planning to finish, I mean, back in those days, I'm like, I'm ready. I'm just like, I'm finishing every fight. I'm finishing every fight. So I'm just thinking to myself, well, I just said, okay, if it goes to the, if it goes to time limit, let's just call it a draw. That I said that, and then CJ just looked at me and was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's cool, that's cool. We'll just do that." So that was kind of how that even became like a, an issue, anyway. Because it, I think at that point they were doing different things. I mean, it was like I don't know why they asked us that, but they did. And I just said, "Hey, if there's no decisive winner, we'll just call it a draw." So we both agreed to that. And, and that was it because you were in his backyard. That's well? why that that and I felt that I had the ability to finish. The fight, I mean, I definitely was like, well, I'm going to end it. In, I mean, in my mind, it's like, well, I'm going to finish the fight anyway, so we don't got to worry about a draw. Um, you know, that's that's the confidence of, you know, an 18-year-old kid. Um, yeah, and, you know, but the 18-year-old kid, Miguel, we're not able to hear you. We see your lips moving, but you're, you're muted. Um, but, you know, the, the thing with that also is that that's a very seasoned move. Yeah. And somebody at 18, I mean, you know, that, 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 that's pretty impressive. You know what I mean? Especially from a small town, you know, yeah. small town, Indiana, you, you're, you're handling yourself much wiser than your age and location were at that point in your life. All I can say was I tried to be a pretty, pretty good student of the game. And, you know, I was around Jeff and Miguel a lot. So I picked up a lot of, I guess, you know, nuggets of, of wisdom or knowledge and, you know, some pretty crazy stories too. So I don't know. Just <laughs> yeah, so you, I, 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 how'd the fight go with CJ? How'd you feel like it went? I felt like, man, I've gone back and watched it a couple times. Um, like I never felt like I felt like I was kind of wearing him down as well. Um, yeah, he's a fast starter. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like he was kind of being able to kind of impose his game plan a little bit in the beginning with some takedowns and whatnot. But I kind of felt like he started to slow down. And I started yeah. to get stronger. And I mean, I felt like had it been, um, had it gone to a decision and the judging was fair. I'm not saying they had improper judging or anything. I'm yeah. just saying, but if people were, were unbiased judging, I felt like I would have won the fight. 
I mean, like, like thinking back on it and the, like the last time I saw the fight. So maybe I should have just opted to have that, but you know, whatever. Hindsight, <laughs> it wasn't worth the risk. Hometown, I wouldn't. Huh? Not worth the risk. No way. No, not in somebody's hometown. You've been home for too yeah. many times. Well, well here, the, the key there is, uh, you know, was that Brian Madden, the promoter? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's because, Hey, if you get both guys who agree to draw the pocket, you know, the, the win money stays in his pocket. <laughs> little secret Boy, for you guys. You probably it's love sad. that. It's sad we figured that out now, you know, not back then, right? But you know, yeah, that's the that's the bottom line is is if they don't have to give it out, right? And Aaron was talking about you know moments that Tony Torres fight <clears throat> was on the border, right? Was was that yeah. Laredo? Yeah, and, and Tito was there. John Lober, right? Yeah, John. That was an interesting night. I'm sure Jeff told you about all like, you know, there was like there like there was a pro wrestler that was fighting Rinkin that ended up choking Rinkin with his wristband. I mean, it was like the most blatant <laughs> thing I've ever seen. He the dude just grabs his wristband, stretches it out, wraps it around Rinkin's neck twice, and he's just choking the piss out of him. I mean, like, this was a crazy event, man. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely I, I I remember a story about you in a shiny shirt that you know I don't know how much you want to share, but uh, yeah, Lober Tito, you're talking about bad boys from the early days and stuff. And he did have access, like Aaron, because being mentored by Jeff and later on, you know, me helping out, he always was a guy like that had access to a lot of you know. Lober was a guy with historic fights, man. You know, yeah, so oh yeah, totally. He was the first guy to beat Frank Shamrock. Yeah. And when he yeah. gets his leg snapped in the pancreas ring, like, and like, his the Japanese guy snaps his leg, and he's looking at the ref with the guy's leg broken, and Lober wants to continue. I mean, come on, <laughs> man. The, guy's a, the guy's a classic <laughs> and, and, and a real dude. Anyway, go, John. Uh, Mike. Mike. So, whoever uh, <laughs> your 14th fight, as Miguel had talked about earlier, was on hook and shoot again, like you and Jeff Osborne. I don't know if Jeff was trying to get you killed or he loved you, but you definitely were like you know, number one on his to call list. And he put you up against Eves Edwards. Is that the first time you ever got a broken jaw? Because I know that's kind of a reoccurring theme later on in your career, but was that the first time? No, no, no. I didn't get a broken jaw in that fight. Um, like it's crazy, man. It's funny. Cause I've heard Eve be on like uh, on Rogan's podcast. And each time they talk about it, it's just like, gets just worse and worse. It's just like, and then you were hitting him and his face fell off and his eyes were swinging. <laughs> it's just like each time they talk about it, man, it gets worse. But um, no, what happened? Like I fought Eve in, uh, you know, uh, October 2nd, 1999, at Wichita Falls, Texas, Texas Heat. Um, he cut my chin. It was Pancras Rules match. He won. He took my title. He won. Uh, we rematched the second time, uh, um, was uh, July 14, 2001, uh, Evansville. Uh, now that fight, Eve caught me with an uppercut, okay? He was laying a bunch of pressure on me in a corner, and I'm blocking, I'm moving, I'm trying to get out of the way of everything. I kind of ducked down. He sends an uppercut up through the center. He hit me right here in, the, in my, in, right, not in the chin, he hit me right above it. And he hit me and he broke my palate. He broke my, oh. my, my lower palate and my four, my four bottom teeth. It was weird, man. They moved back in a section, like all four oh. teeth. They, like the bone broke, like a tiny bit of the bone broke and four teeth just moved back like 
you know, a quarter inch or something. It was wow. really, and the funny part about this was, this was my first fight back out of action for a while. And Matt Hume is my corner man. Okay. So I walked back to the corner that happened in the second round. I still had one more round. Wait, I now is this the rematch or is this, this the is the fight? rematch? This is okay. the rematch. Right, right. This okay. is closed fist MMA style. Uh, I believe that was actually a shooto rules match, possibly. So they had, you know, a little bit of different, like no elbows type of thing, if it was shooto. But um, yeah, so he he pops me with that. I go back to the corner, and then I tell him that, oh man, my, my mouth's messed up, my teeth are, are moved back. And then he, Roman Reutberg was a, a popular kickboxer at the time. He was training with Murray Smith. He's a dentist as well. And then Matt looks at my teeth and then he just goes, don't worry about it. Roman will fix them. And he slaps <laughs> my face and he's pushed me back out. And I was like, well, okay, I, I guess I got to go back out there. I mean, like, so I just like bite down on my mouthpiece. Not too hard uh, with those messed up teeth. Uh, and I just shit. get back out there, man, and, and go after it for a whole nother round. That's tough. Ah. You know, you got you gotta respect the coach who knew right away that he was gonna need dental help. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got a dentist, you're fine. You <laughs> <laughs> got it covered. I remember um, those fights. He's selling himself short too, because the first time he goes, you know, he if you remember some of what he's talking about in time sequence. He had gone to Texas and beaten a, a guy with a rep, and that was Tony. And seen Eves there, and now he's going back to Texas to fight Eves, fight Eves under, you know, pancreas rules and stuff down there, loses the belt, loses the decision, comes back to Evansville with a new, you know, coach, a, a world-class coach to do the rematch. And to be honest with you, you know, that, that was – we already had like the Abu Dhabi relationship, but we didn't have any real sponsors and stuff. And Jeff really did, you know, maybe the premier job he, he had done promoting that fight too. You know, it, it had everybody pumped up and, you know, uh, it, it was definitely like a main event. You know, you could have done it in the UFC. Could have been there. Yeah, that was, a, I guess, didn't Miguel, you said that Dan Lambert, like I know that you spoke to him after I was injured, like, and he kind of helped us with some of the, uh, like he kind of helped with some of the billing and things on that. And he said, man, if I got to watch a fight of that caliber, then dude, I don't have a problem, you know, or, or something along those lines, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you, Chris had an emergency bill that was a couple hundred bucks for the shoulder. I, the rest, you know, I guess his insurance covered it because I didn't get another bill. Right. But I paid yeah. 400 bucks for that. There was a level that if the medical needs got to be too much and I couldn't handle it, and it came very shortly after about four or five hundred bucks, right? But uh, we called Papa Dan, you know what I mean? And so you you needed some help there. <laughs> yeah, as the dental stuff, that's that I think that starts at about five hundred bucks. Uh, and Dan man. Lambert, I, I, I almost hate to tell stories about his kindness. Because all it does is just it opens him up to people that are just kind of like predatory in their needs. Because right. that guy, I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, he, he's he's very obviously a, a, aware of of those types of people as well. And if you notice the types of stories that we share, it's almost inevitably something like this: him behind the scenes helping right. out, a, a never huge, even asking for a thank you, never yeah, even asking for it. Uh, you know, helping out either a competitor. Or directly, or a promoter, you know, screwed something up, and is gonna <laughs> the competitors are gonna suffer. So he kind of covers them. 
you know, and that's basically it. He did what he did. He wasn't going to get suckered by anybody, I don't think. But yeah, it always shows up like that. And it was very grateful because, you know, like I said, you had a UFC level fight happening in a war memorial in Indiana. And, you know, there was, you know, the sport was about to get big. It wasn't big. This was July of 2001. I right away, you you know, Zoof is brand new there. You know, they they if they had the UFC, it had only been for that from the beginning of that year, right? So yeah, they think Zufa took over what, like January of '01 or something. They were like in the Meadowlands or whatever. They were in Jersey for that for that opener and all that. They had just Zufa just bought out uh, from SEG in like '01, I believe. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, Mike, take it away. Take us back. Yeah, on yeah. Track you, here. you and it, this is where things kind of get a little murky in your career, like. You know, we always talk about like 50 fight veterans, like you got to get conned or come up on a con. You got to get stiffed by a promoter, you know, medical bills that are beyond your means. Like those are all like benchmarks that you have to hit in order to like kind of get right, respect passion. from like the MMA brethren. You know what I mean? Like the guys that really you know, put, the, put the miles on their car. So and, and this is me foreshadowing. I, I, I might be wrong. So Aaron takes a flight to Hawaii and I think it's one of TJ Thompson's cards. And I'm assuming whoever it is you were fighting, something happened and they switched the bout because you fought uh, Falianco Vitali with a 30 pound weight difference. Yeah. What? Okay. We're, we're jumping back, back like in chronology here a little bit. That fight happened um, October of 99. That was after... Right that after was actually the a few weeks. That was like a few weeks after the Eve Edward fight in Texas. Yes, yeah. that's where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He went back to the first Eve Edwards fight. So yeah, absolutely. We're going to cover. Okay. There's a okay. lot in between there we got to cover. So. so Yeah, definitely. Is there an opponent switch there? Yeah, I think I was supposed to fight Cheyenne Paddockin, maybe. I mean, okay, this was not this one actually was not a TJ Thompson production. It was something else. It was called Rage in the Cage, I think was the name of the event. TJ yeah. was doing Super Brawls. Um, and I always wanted to get on Super Brawl, but whatever it was, I, I don't know. I think he and Jeff maybe well, I mean, obviously, you know, just economically, it's it's way cheaper to just bring people. You know, like uh, from like the Hawaiian fighters fight Hawaiian fighters, right? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I always wanted to fight on Super Brawl, but I could never quite get in Super Brawl. Um, I think Osborne put this together through it was some kind of a of a connection of of people knowing people and what well, I don't know, but anyhow, I got booked to fight on the show. I believe originally it was like Cheyenne Paddock and a lighter weight, you know, Hawaiian fighter, like. You know, I don't remember Cheyenne's record. I, I remember, I, you know, I remember him being kind of like a like a mid tier. I thought I remember. I mean, he he wasn't like one of their most well known world beater guys from Hawaii at the time. And I was just like, yeah, dude. I mean, I'm I'm up for the fight. That sounds good. Um, and then I think like the day before we left on the flight. I mean, you know, you're locked and loaded at this point. The day before, <laughs> and they're like, oh wait. Uh, I, think Cheyenne's out. We'll find a replacement, though. Come on over. And we're like, well, I mean, it's Hawaii, and I've always wanted to fight in Hawaii, so we're going. And then, yeah, by the time that, um, you know, we landed in Hawaii, yeah, my opponent had grown from, like, a 165-pound fighter to, like, a 200-pound 
fighter. Uh, yeah, I, I went from Shia Batigan to Nico Vitale. And this was Nico's first MMA fight, okay? I mean, like at least on record or whatever that I know of. Now, I guess Nico was part of like an indoor like football league or something. I mean, Nico is ferociously athletic. I mean, this guy is like huge tickets. I see him at the weigh-in. Wow. And I mean, I, that's the first time I even see him. I see him at the weigh-in and, you know, it's like, oh, okay. Well, uh, like this guy's, you know, I mean, he's like a bodybuilder and he's, you know, he's, yeah, he's in great shape. It was like, well, whatever, man. I mean, like, you know, but they said it was his first MMA fight. So it's like, well, you know, I know he's bigger than me, whatever, I, you know, I've got experience. I'll just kind of use that. I'm not, I, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm already in locked and loaded. So I'm ready to do the fight anyway. I just, so anyway, we go into this fight and um, you know, I, I probably shouldn't have necessarily been taking such a, like another, another tough fight, like two or three weeks after the <laughs> Eve Edwards fight, but I was just trying to fight as much as I could back then. Um, so I think I throw a kick maybe, and he takes me down off the kick. You know, I'm trying to work submissions from my back. He's doing a good job defending them. And he lands some pretty strong punches from on top. And the fact that he was about two weight classes above me, I mean, you know, that really gave him a little extra pop in those punches. Um, so, you know, uh, Go Korshevichian was the ref for that fight. He ends up jumping in and stopping it. I mean, like in retrospect, it's probably a good stoppage. I mean, I was pissed at the time. I don't know. I mean, like, it, this is like we're talking like 20 years ago. But yeah, he landed some solid punches and, you know, they rattled me a bit. So, you know, I, I don't know. But yeah, that was a very tough fight. That was kind of a bit of a screw job because, I mean, you know, why are you going to, you know, well, I know why, because they're trying to put over their boy. I mean, no, he was kind of like, it was a Hawaiian fighter. <laughs> they're looking to make a name off of off of me, you know, beat me up and and get him out there. And I mean, he did go far. He, he went to UFC, you know, he fought Matt Lindland in that infamous fight where Lindland Suplexes Vitaly and knocks himself out. Uh, <laughs> so you know, well, I mean, well, Vitaly had a solid career. Okay, now he, he, the real question is: Do you think your original opponent even got hurt, or do you think Nico's opponent got hurt and they just did a bait and switch? Well, probably just a bait and switch. Or I mean, or maybe they go. just knew that they were going to do that the whole time and they didn't care. I mean, that could have been the part of it too. It could have been I mean, his teammate. Yeah, keep his weight low. It's, yeah. it's possible. Did they adjust your pay in regards to it? <laughs> uh, not that I'm aware of. I mean, like, uh, <laughs> who we're going to gain 30 pounds. It's the same pay them. Yeah, who, who what, cornered what, you? What, what Aaron doesn't know is they gave Jeff $7,000 more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably, that's probably what happened, yeah. I'm, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. So who uh, was your corner at that point in time? Jeff. Jeff. Jeff Osborne, yeah. Oh, I'm surprised Jeff allowed that. I'm surprised. Well, I, he was nervous, but Jeff was nervous no matter who I fought. So that was nothing new. <laughs> I mean, oh, he was always is, nervous when we went on the road. So now You're talking about early history. And the problem with Jeff being there or me being there at that point is that, you know, we're really kind of hinging the hook and shoot name on the fighter. And that's, you know, what was going on there. So that's kind of why you kind of, you can't show up in Hawaii for a vacation and not fight. You know what I mean? It's like, what did what they pay the yeah. plane tickets for? I had that happen in Brazil where we sent Jeff as the corner man for Travis Fulton and Fulton no-showed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was like, well, 
I guess I'm going to have to pay for a plane ticket there. I don't think Sergio charged me for it, but he was like, wow. what did I do? Pay for a vacation for, for Jeff? You know, so yeah, it, it's a touchy situation, you know? Well, well, you know, the strange thing is, like I met, you know, it's Hawaii. Obviously, TJ's kind of famous for Hawaii. You're saying that he had no involvement in the show. Meanwhile, he turns up at your next uh, fight, which is a WEF title fight when you're 19 years old against Colin O'Rourke. Right. And TJ was the ring announcer. So I just kind of figured, man, you do me this solid, I'll do you one, you know, down the road. But if you're, you're saying that's not how it happened, it's just kind of a weird set of circumstance surrounding it. Yeah, because, I mean, Osborne, Osborne got me on WEF. Um, I guess he knew Jamie, Jamie Levine was just, you know, he was promoting that event. Uh, I don't know, Miguel. Maybe you know. I mean, Jeff went. I thought Jeff maybe went to that to that WEF before that one. Maybe he didn't. I think it was like in Louisiana, stomping the swamp. I think it was called. Um, that was, I think, when WEF kind of started to get big. Started to get big was I think the the seventh WEF because I believe they had uh, Minotaro fought on that one against a guy from Militich's gym. I think. Um, there were a couple. There were a couple of pretty good names on the on yeah, WEF. Yeah, yeah, the one you, the one you fought in Atlanta. Yeah, I think I think what you're looking at there is you're looking at the rise of Jamie Levine. To be quite honest with you. So, yeah, yeah. How was yeah. it dealing with Jamie? Because because really fast to recap. So he goes out and he's fighting in Hawaii for whatever promotion that is and stuff like that. Now he comes back. He runs into TJ, the Hawaiian promoter, in Atlanta because. It's Levine paying for plane tickets and doing the politicking of bringing TJ in, bringing Monty in, bringing me in, et cetera, et cetera. How was your experience with uh, Jamie Levine? Me personally, I mean, I got along with Jamie great, but I mean, Jeff, I guess, handled most of the contract negotiation type stuff. I mean, Jeff talked to him about, you know, whatever my contract would be. And up to that point, I guess it was the most that I had made, which you know what wasn't a lot, <laughs> but at that time, <laughs> you know, it was. Uh, Chris knows what I'm talking about. Those early. Oh yeah, days. <laughs> it's embarrassing, uh, but it's true. Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm not going to say how much it was. <laughs> but, so, uh, so, when you fought Colin, were you aware that he was like one of Henzo Gracie's top students? I knew he was one of Henzo's students, but again, I. I, I had heard he didn't have like a lot of MMA experience or he was making his debut, I, I think as well. And uh, he had done some damage in Naga. Um, he was really strong grappler, uh, you know, competing, but I, but to me it was, just, I mean, you know, I just told myself, well, Hey, you know, uh, jujitsu matches aren't MMA. So I'm going to smash him. I mean, that was my mindset. Um, and um you know, I'd had the setbacks with Eve and I had the setback with Palanico Vitale and I had really dedicated myself and trained hard for, you know, cause I got this fight scheduled in the new year and I was like, okay, look, you know, I'm going to get very serious here, train my butt off and I'm going to be ready to go for this, for this event. And I didn't do any other, sh you know, I was coming off two losses, two back-to-back -back losses and I really committed myself to training hard and I was really ready to come in there and make a statement. So, you know, I was pretty pretty committed to, to to I didn't care who they put in there. I was just ready to go. Well, well, you know, Chris, as as we've discussed on this podcast dozens of times, we usually only discuss like the receiving end of the screwdriver. And and I and this is me forecasting here. I believe this is on the giving 
end of the screw job because Colin, as you had stated, it's a WEF title fight. So they're going to put a title on somebody that, you know, ha- doesn't have any fights left. You know, that could have been Henzo politicking at the time. MMA was still young, but your record, like when you're walking out, it shows your name and it says three and oh. Yeah. And then when they announce you, they announce you as 11 wins, two losses, one draw. Okay. At this point, neither of those are correct. And even if you add them together, they're not right. Yeah. So do you yeah, think they, that they may have been unaware of how much experience you had going into this fight? No clue. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I believe me, I've seen replays of that fight and I've, I've caught that. Um, and the funny thing is the guys in the booth were people I had trained with at Militich. Cause I went to Militich in Iowa for like a summer, summer of 1999, I was spent a good part of that. And actually he trained at Militich <laughs> to get ready for the Eve Edwards fight uh, in October of 99. So um, I'd spent a decent amount, I mean, I mean, some time at Militich. And so they, <laughs> those guys knew me. They knew that I had more fights than that. So, uh, yeah, I don't yeah, know. No, I, I, mean, I, like, I don't know. I think I think the way I think you hit it right on the head when you said it was it's always good to have a Hensel Gracie team group of people there debuting a guy if you could get a debut guy a win then you've got a gateway to having his guys on your card there and I believe that would be what Levine was pl- planning there and I think it backfired on them in that O'Rourke was a little bigger and a little stronger than Aaron and you know if you take a, a, a look at the weigh-ins and stuff. You, you, you may have been leaning on betting on, on Colin. I know a lot of people were – I remember a couple of people like Frank Mullis and people like that were very high on Colin before that fight. And, you know, Aaron put a stop to that with some experience and stuff. But I think they knew and had seen you fight and were more prepared than you could possibly have been with them. Well, you know, Aaron, you also mentioned the broadcast booth had seen you train – the broadcast booth for that was Jay Adams and Frank Trigg. Oh, for for that event? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, Dude, they uh, were talking about, it was in like Washington, D.C. They were talking about everything other than the fight. Dude, like. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, you're talking about UWC. I'm looking at WEF. It says WEF title online. Oh, okay. Um. Well, Frank Trigg was Frank Trigg was at a show. Frank Trigg was was uh, he did he did do the booth for a fight that I did in Washington D.C. But for WEF, I was talking about uh, when I I fought O'Rourke in WEF. Now UWC, I think you know what I might be looking online, and it might be a little because dude, there's a lot of stuff that's not accurate. And, yeah. you know, based on, like, the totality of what, the information you've given us, like, with dates and names and times, I have no doubt that you're correct. And the yeah. information that I procured from online is probably a little faulty. I mean, we're going back, you know, two decades here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I think you're right on that. But Colin Lane, it lists it as a WEF title fight. Okay, yeah, yeah. I did, I did, I did fight for a, a WEF title fight. But like the booth I'm talking about, it was four guys. Wade Rome, I think, was one of them. There was a guy okay. from Pat Melitich. Uh, there were two others. I can't. Oh, uh, Stephen Quadros was in the booth that Five night. professors. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a solid booth, but there were four guys, and that's kind of wow. a lot. Too so many. They were kind too of many. Over each other when they were given the commentary. 
Yeah, no, no, that, that, that definitely was not the Colin O'Rourke fight. That was it, Frank Trigg. No, yeah. no, no. The other thing you got to consider, though, is that somebody may have repackaged it and had Trigg do that on, in a studio afterwards. A good point. And that could be very well why why he sounds completely like he doesn't know what the fuck is going on during the fight. Dude, dude, like, they're talking about the Chicago Cubs. They're talking about, like, helicopters flying around. Meanwhile, you're going to war, and not a single, like, oh, yeah, yeah, look, he just landed a nice right punch. Anyway, yeah, the Chicago Cubs, dude, I, like, I, I don't know, man. I love Frank Trigg. But after that, he definitely shouldn't be in the announcer booth. Now, your corner <laughs> for that fight was also Tito Ortiz. That's right. How nice. is this a reoccurring theme happening with you and Tito? Uh, we just kind of started to get to know each other a little bit. Um, he first became aware of me of that fight in South Texas. Um, I, yeah, he just became aware of me of that fight in South Texas. Um, Man, I, I think, yeah, that was only the second time I had seen him. But I just said, hey, man, you want to corner me for this fight? And he said, yeah, sure. Was he there so, with somebody else? You know, yeah, he, John Lewis. I think he was there with John Lewis. He was Fair training enough. with John Lewis at that time. And John Lewis fought Laverne Clark that night. That's a hard fight. Who won the fight? Uh, Laverne won that fight. On yeah. Season. Laverne's a tough but, dude, man. Uh, did you ever, did you ever go out and train with Tito with those guys? I was getting, I was trying to kind of coordinate that, but then I, um, never ended up making it out there. Uh, mm. I, you know, had my sights set on California because I mean, you know, palm trees and bikinis, man. So I was all, <laughs> I was all Place about trying to get out there, but I ended up going up to rainy Seattle instead. So I don't know how that worked <laughs> out, but. How was it working out with Matt Hume? Um, Matt, at that time, I mean, he was really had a great handle on 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 mixing mixed martial arts. I mean, on mixing martial arts. I mean, he just, I mean, he had trained in everything individually. Uh, he had put it put it all together. He was there in the early stages. He was there in Pancras. Uh, he was, you know, he put on the, he had his own sanctioning body, his own event called like UF, UFCF, I believe it was called. Um, and he was promoting big fights way back in the, in the, in like the, like the, the mid to late nineties. Um, so man, he really had a strong grasp of the idea and the, uh, you know, how mixed, mixed, true mixed martial arts training should be approached. So that was uh, kind of invaluable. Uh, some of the time I spent up there. How was his instruction? It was good, but man, Matt was really like kind of old schoolish. Chris will probably know kind of where I'm going with some of the pancreas stuff. Um, man, Matt, like Matt had this thing where when you came up to join his gym, he had an initiation. He didn't tell you this, but <laughs> he would. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, like that old Ken Shamrock style stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but see, Matt didn't make me do like a thousand jumping jacks and a thousand foot. Like he just beat the, he just beat the crap out of me one night. And I didn't know that this was coming at all, man. I didn't know this was coming at all. We got done training with just the regular class and he just nonchalantly walks out on the mat and just goes, let's, uh, let's, let's roll for a little bit. And I was like, yeah, okay. Because, you know, I'm this young, dumb kid that's just ready to <laughs> be a sponge and learn everything yeah. I can. And, man, he 
just, I mean, he just destroyed me. He was just, he was putting his knee in my face and, and just crunching my face. He was, he, he just kept ripping my arm in a, in a Kimura. And at one point he just grabbed me with his bare hand and just started choking me. Yeah. Just choking me till I almost passed out. Um, dude, he just, he was like, he was trying to kill me. I mean, like, it was just unbelievable. I mean, like, uh, and then after it was done, he probably did it for about 30 minutes. I mean, I couldn't do anything. I mean, I couldn't get away from him. He just, he just, just pulverized me. And then he just, and then the funny part was after he was done, I said, thanks. And you like shook his hand and then just, I didn't know what else to do. I was just yeah. like, dude. He probably, what's wrong with this kid? Yeah. I, I saw that actually in Japan when I was there at Pancrates. I was staying there and remember seeing Suzuki just going against these young guys and choking them and they're kind of tapping and he's not really letting go. He waits till they're almost out and then he's pushing them around and get back up and he starts going right again. And I was kind of getting pissed. I was like, you're going to kill these guys, man. I didn't really understand what was going on, but they only wanted the toughest people. And if you couldn't deal with that, you quit. And if you could, right. you became a tough fighter. That's, that was a thought process. And it, there's something to be said for, but man, it, it's a different world. You can't do that. Anymore. Yo, there was a guy, there was a guy from Chicago that used to do that. His name was John Lane Gacy. <laughs> a little different. <laughs> yeah, a little, little different sport. But uh, he definitely did that quite often, I might add. Um, well, well, the thing that Aaron doesn't let you know is <laughs> that, oh, you know, his day of training. So he's there, a sponge, trying to learn everything. And at that point, Hume had Barnett, Hallman. Salivary. Salivary. And, like, his UFC frontline guys, uh, you know, for, Barnett was a UFC heavyweight champion. So that's who he trained with. So it's not like, you know, you probably caught some lumps there, too. And then you get Hume to beat you up, you know. So I think I think only a little part of Matt really enjoys it. I think the other part is just philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to comment either way. I'm not sure what that would it falls into. But Matt, I tell you what, like if there's – I wish like a classic Matt Hume T-shirt existed because I would 100% buy one. I'm a – Huge fan of what it is he does. I'm a big fan of that guy. Um, now, from this Colin O'Rourke fight, what I refer to as the Gotti Ward of the independent scene, um, like Samoa Joe and CM Punk, what they did on the independent scene takes place in your life. And that's back in Hook and Shoot with your guy, you know, Jeff Osborne, you fight Steve Berger and just right. a war. That's a good description of what of what happened. Yeah. <clears throat> did Did you expect that coming into that fight? I mean, I expected him to come to fight hard. And looking back at it, I guess like you know, I just saw a clip of that fight the other night. I was kind of like going through videos the other night and showing someone <laughs> a video. I mean, I've not watched that in a long time. And then I was like, wow, we're really kind of throwing a lot of punches in this fight. And I was like, well, I guess this really was a good tough fight. <laughs> I mean, I just, uh, I didn't really know what to expect going in. You know, I mean, I knew all about his jiu-jitsu background. I didn't really, I mean, he was a Golden Gloves boxer as well. I didn't really, you know, I, yeah, I just. That's not a secret. Yeah, yeah. For sure. But, 
I, um, you know, so I didn't really expect it to be the war that it turned out to be, but you know, once, once it started, I was committed. So, you know, we just kind of kept, I just kind of kept going after it. So were you a big ticket seller locally at that time? Yeah. I mean, I felt like that, uh, you know, I, I, well, I, by that time, I definitely, I think it in 2000, I mean, like it was a slow, slow process where more people were coming out and watching them. But yeah, I mean, like at that point, I would say, you know, I, 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 I was doing pretty well, bringing in a lot of people. Now, why did you two never rematch? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, that's probably not the answer you're looking for, but I mean, I was open for it. Uh, okay. Well, look, yeah, here's what happened. That was my last fight before I went to AMC. Well, okay. I did a month of training at AMC in May of 2000. I think actually Miguel, I had met, I had, fortunately Miguel had pulled some strings and he made it possible for me to go to Abu Dhabi after WEF, right after WEF, uh, I was able to go over to Abu Dhabi, the Abu Dhabi Submission Wrestling Championships. And um, I kind of made that, con uh, I kind of like got to know Dennis Holman a little bit and got to see how good Matt's guys had done in Abu Dhabi, even though they're predominantly an MMA gym, not a grappling gym in my you know, opinion. Um, and, uh, that fight happened right before I went out to Matt Hume, the, the, like before I joined Matt Hume's AMC Pancration team. And, um, I, uh, after I did that burger fight and went out to Matt's, Matt said, you're not fighting pro again for a long time. We're going to round you out and make you a UFC world champion. So Matt pulled me out of competition for, wow. I guess like 11 months or something like that. It was quite a while before he wow. let me get back in. That's maybe some of the reason why I never fought Steve Berger. It wasn't like it was like, oh, in three months or six months, like UFC, they do these rematches and trilogies like all the time. <laughs> but uh, that's why I didn't just rematch Berger like, you know, six months later or something because Matt wasn't having it. He said, We're, that was my last fight before I joined AMC Kickboxing. So, okay, so I, I don't want to embarrass Aaron, but when he says he went to Abu Dhabi, you know, we had the opportunity to videotape that event and it was the, the hook and shoe crew that had to do it. Jeff Osborne and myself kind of directing the thing. So we had to put together a team and Aaron's official job was to take the battery guy, the bat, but you know, charge batteries to the camera guys throughout the show. So he was right around taking <laughs> batteries there, nice. but we got the job done. He got the experience and he got to be around, you know, we, we met Ruben Asado that event, man. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, God damn, you know? So it, it, it served its purpose. So anyway, sorry, Mike, carry on. No, no, it's okay. And, and do you think the eight, like it was shooto rules. So in that bout, like I, I'm not a real big fan of shooto rules, but I do understand them. I think a lot of the catches on the ground really never get called. And if they do get called, it's too much. You know, is a a catch. You know, it's it's a submission when you land the submission, not an almost submission. Um, do you think that standing eight count in the second round may have uh, helped prolong that fight? I yeah, I, you know, I mean, it was. I mean, I caught Steve with a good punch. He kind of bounced back from it, but at the same time. Sean, the referee, Sean Brockmall, he was kind of bound, kind of jumping in to stop it. And then Steve kind of 
tackled him a little bit as he was coming back. I mean, I don't know how much the punch hurt him. I know it did have some effect. And, you know, I, it's just speculation at this point. I mean, I'd like to think that I would have finished him after that. He'd like to, I mean, you just talked to him. You said the other day, I'm sure he was like, no, nah, that didn't hurt. I was fine and I would have <laughs> been fine. So, you know, that's just a fighter and both of us saying, you know, whatever. So, I mean, I, you know, I really wish that it wasn't under Shido rules. So we would have known what would have happened. But uh-huh. I definitely know I caught him with a good shot. But what I would have finished him, I mean, I Steve like Shido. So, but you who knows? You know, Berger is one of those guys, like, you know, by his 13th fight, he's got like eight guys that have either going to be in the UFC or have already fought in the UFC. Like, <laughs> he, he's his record is insane. Like, it's some people are like, oh, man, I really like to fight. And then there's guys like yourself and Steve Berger where, no, man, like, they get off fighting. There's something else going on here. There's something possibly wrong with these individuals by how much they really enjoy fighting and you had mentioned you had a 11 month layoff in regards right after the steve burger fight because you had joined matt Hume's gym how did you support yourself for 11 months were you yeah. working uh i was living in matt Hume's gym at the time um i was actually living in the gym that, like banker style i guess you you know uh and uh, I just had money saved from all the fights from before. I just brought it up in a little envelope, and I just lived <laughs> off of it for 11 months, man. That's wild. That's wild, man. Good for you. Well, your 23rd fight uh, is against Robbie Lawler at UFC 37. He hits hard. I agree with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> time you got nothing but props for the fight deservedly so you know my friend thank you but and and then the fight holds up because it's something you can still show people and it becomes like a historic fight and stuff like that but how do you look at it you know how do you fix that up because if you look at it he you know he's 185 pounder that cuts to 170 and you're a 155 pounder that maybe should have been at one four, you know like i mean your heroics Still may not get the props they deserve for that fight. Talk yeah, you always fought a little heavy. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, it was weird. I was just, I, I had never in high school, I always kind of walked at about 170 and I always kind of wrestled at 171. I don't know. I guess I never really knew how to cut weight. I never had to cut weight and I just never wanted to do it in a sense. <laughs> so I just never did for the longest time. I mean, that you fight didn't have to. Scored, what's that? You didn't have to. You were doing well while it was. So I cut what? Yeah. yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you know, like, uh, I don't know. Because, I mean, I guess I was just taking that Frankie Edgar approach. Like, Frankie just walked around and then, hell, he fought a weight class up, basically, and was just doing great. So it's like, why worry about it? You know, if things are going okay. I mean, I didn't win every single fight up to that point, but I felt like I was holding my own. So, you know, but let me tell you, after that fight, then I started starting to have some considerations of, hey, maybe I should think about doing something different because this guy hits hard. He's a very big. Yeah. You know, you know, like we, we had talked about this with Steve Berger like last night and, you know, both of your records are very intense. Like you, you really got to look at them. So you give it the proper care. So generally like, I don't like, 
doing back-to-back interviews like this because it's it's it needs time and love. And when I look at that Robbie Lawler fight, you fight Robbie <coughs> Lawler at UFC 37. Yeah. And then uh, Berger fights him at UFC 37.5. And yeah. it, it kind of tells me, and like this is me just assuming again, and obviously you're not supposed to do that, that that mad genius of, of, of Jeff Osborne, <clears throat> like the powers that be at the UFC watched yours and Steve's fight, and they go, this is what we need here. Figure it out. Figure it out. So they said, okay, well, we, we got both participants. Let's just throw them at the same guy, Robbie Lawler, who at the time was a hot hand, obviously. And, you know, they tried to mimic that, that, that brilliance that both you and Steve, uh, you know, kind of manufactured on the independent scene. Well, I think it was a nice dose for the national crowd of what people in Indiana already knew we were getting. And that extends itself to Chris, who also debuted. I think you got, you, you made an earlier debut, right? You were in the UFC, like, Right ESG or SEG days. Yeah, yeah. You, and you I got, didn't, but you, was you a, got back right around this time too, right? Right around the Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got back to fight Robbie Lawler, UFC 45. Look at that. So look the at that. The 10-year so, anniversary. Yeah. So, I mean, but and, yeah, and I, mean, I'll I be think, honest I with think you. Yeah, that's a lot of Indiana talent that they were yeah. using, uh, using it to for Robbie Lawler. There's a reason for that, yeah. you know? I'll be honest with you, Aaron. Uh, uh, just you know, knowing your 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 reputation from like the Eve Edwards fights and the Steve Berger fight and the Robbie Lawler fight, I think it kind of made me. I liked the um, the the way people talked about you. You know what I mean? And it kind of made me want to change. Not, I'd say it made me want to fight similar style. And, and uh, yeah. made me think I don't care as much about. I mean. Don't get me wrong. I want to win every fight. Always wanted to win every fight, but there's there's a little bit more honor in going out there and just uh, I want everybody talking about the fight. You know, I want at the end of the yeah. day, people be like, "Dude, I don't care if if he's on the card. I want to watch it." That was kind of the goal in the way. You know, I want, I want people to be like, "Damn, that dude can put on an entertaining fight." So I, I you were one of the guys I used to think about when I hear stuff like that, and it kind of made me want to fight like that as well. So really, uh, pretty cool to have you on here, brother. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, man. Well, hey, dude, I mean, like, I always enjoyed watching your fights, too, because, I mean, you always took it, you know, you were like that go out on your shield type of fighter. I remember when you caught that guy, like, Chad Lavender, I think, didn't you, like, you, like, you choked the guy out, you had him in two submissions at one time, man, like, <laughs> I did not, I look at the ref, I'm kept going, he's unconscious, he's unconscious, and the guy's like, was oh. that, was that, you, that's like the, uh, was that in UFC, the old time? That was league? AFC, I think, oh, yeah, that was down in Florida. Was that the? I, got, I think you I got, got that on DVD. Because Chris has like one of the all-time great UFC submissions. Who who was that against? Uh, I had it, I did it twice. One on uh, Matt Brown and um, uh, geez, what's the guy? The the Gizzard um, came uh, Jason uh, Gilliam. Okay, but uh, okay, and Chat Chat was another, another one of my guys. But interesting, very anyway. Back, back right, so. You go from Robbie Lawler. I mean, that, that's not an easy loss to take, obviously. And you, you fought your heart out. And, you know, you and Chris definitely do have similar styles. I mean, that, that's without question. You being a southpaw, though, you do the smartest thing you can do. You always load up on your left hand. It's like you use your power hand as your jab, and you make people continue to walk into it, and, and you catch them. And I, I think that's what happened in the burger fight. But we're at your 24th fight, Alejandro Barrios. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Barrios. Yeah, man. So Barrios was Marco Huaz's 
top student. And this is like a reoccurring theme for, you know, for Aaron. He keeps running into, hey, this is my, you know, this is my stud <laughs> from the gym. Get in there, you know, get that ass. And, uh, you know, Alejandro shows up in the UFC later on. But in your corner, you got Maurice Smith. So right. give us all of the background so we understand what took place in that fight, if you don't mind. Okay, well, um, the reason why I had Marie Smith in my in my in my uh, corner for that fight, so um, I was, you know, I had made the move to Seattle. You know, I'd had several. I had the Eve Edwards fight when I was in Seattle. That was like my big comeback fight after the eleven month layoff. Uh, the Eve Edwards like return fight uh, didn't go my way. Then I think I matched up against Mike Willis, a guy uh, I don't know. Miguel would know. Uh, he was another semi-local tri-state area, I think. Or maybe he was, no, he was, I don't know. But he was a hook and shoot Massachusetts. Guy. Mass, okay. That, I knew, as soon as I said that about tri, I was like, wait a minute. No, no, no. He, he was from <laughs> out of town. He was from way out of town. Um, I got got the win against Mike Willis, uh, you know, still in Seattle. Got the, the UFC fight, still in Seattle. Uh, then um, it was... Um, that was December of 2002. And uh, yeah, Matt, and that, like I, um, Dan Lambert, like he, I, I can't remember how that all came together, but uh, Miguel actually kind of was taken over. Man, Miguel was kind of managing my career at that point. Um, he, he kind of took care of things. Like when I got into UFC for UFC 37. Um, so Miguel will probably remember like how it all, I just know that Lambert had a big desire to see Matt Hume fight again because Matt Hume hadn't fought for a long time. He fought in extreme fighting, uh, what three and four, I think, uh, he fought Eric Paulson. He fought, uh, Pat Miletic, Eric Paulson. Um, he beat both of them, but then he tore his ACL grappling in Abu Dhabi. And then it was like, uh, he, he just kind of disappeared from the competition scene, but he was training fighters and people knew about him, all these gym legends of him smashing everybody. And Hume was like, or I mean, uh, Lambert was like, Hey, I want to see this guy fight again. I want to see this guy fight again. So they get him matched up for that inaugural, uh, you know, AFC card in Florida. They get me on it. Uh, another one of, uh, 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 the guys from AMC, he kind of finagled his way onto it as well. Um, <laughs> We uh, yeah, so we had we had a crew of, of, of Seattle, you know, Seattle fighters on that card. And Maurice, I, I guess maybe he was cornering Matt because Maurice didn't have his own fighter. I guess he was helping to corner Matt. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, he just jumped in my corner as well to help. And La Lance Gibson, Lance, I think, had Ryan the Lion Diaz, maybe. Is that maybe why Lance was there? I don't. Miguel, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the card right now and I'm, I'm going through it and I think, you know, Matt may have asked for two plane tickets because he didn't ask for a lot of money. I'll tell you that. Okay. Uh, Mike, <laughs> in a, from, from a historic perspective, what we're looking at here is, is we are looking at the first Florida show for hook and shooting and AFs and, you know, and Lambert with Lambert's cooperation. So at some point here, uh, you know, he'd been helping us with the Indiana shows and he said, you know, the travel was, it was wearing on his schedule. Could we do the same thing in Florida? And you're right. Ryan Diaz was in the main event against Hermes Franca. So right. that, puts, that puts together your guys there. Mike, Wes Sims fought Conan on this fight. Yeah, right. we talked about that. Yeah, we, we actually interviewed Conan Silvera, um, you know, a couple, couple months ago. Um, and and Alexandra Barros was a real student. He was coming off 
He had fought Matt Hughes in the WEF in one of the shows that Aaron uh, fought on. And then after that, he fought Strasser on a hook and shoot. And Strasser is a veteran guy that, you know, I found very reliable and, and super tough. And uh, then he gets Aaron. So, you know, poor Alexander Barros got to play the B, uh, the B side on all three of his fights in the States. <laughs> but at the same time, man, I remember a long time ago talking to Miguel. It was about three years prior or maybe three to four years prior. And Miguel was talking about what an animal, you know, what a fighter Barros was because he was like a runner up in IVC. And then I believe he was a champion in IVC. And for Man. anybody that doesn't, anybody that follows, anybody that, that's in the mix on this podcast, they know about IBC, the most brutal MMA tournament in the world, <laughs> you know, probably at that time. I mean, it was, you Man. know, 30, 30 straight minutes, one round, 30 minutes, complete bare knuckle, uh, you know, soccer kicks on the ground, stomps, the full nine, yep. you know. I, I saw a fight in IBC end with, like, the guy got backed up. With running headbutts like this, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Love it. And if I'm not mistaken, the guy who did it wound up. Uh, Glacian Tebow may have been. It may have been Glacian Tebow who wound up really? having a UFC run in the early yeah. days. But anyway, go ahead. If, yeah. So if not, it was someone that nutty. You know, the thing about Barros is that, like, like you said, he, he he played the nail three different times. He played it well, but then after that, like, it seemed like. Either at that point in your career, you either quit and go home and say, babe, this isn't for me. I love you, but I got to get a job. Or you <laughs> slingshot forward. And that's what Barros did. Barros, you know, he had a respectable career uh, after after your fight with him and, and certainly not an easy one. Um, from there, you, you're staying with the hook and shoot. It's kind of like, a, you know, that's the brand you prefer. I mean, you're obviously got a really good working relationship with Jeff Osborne. And Jeff does you no favor on this one, and he lines you up against lights out Chris Lytle. That's yeah, that was a tough fight. That was for sure. I don't know. I it was a fluke. Tell me it was a fluke. You got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I don't even know what's exactly I forget like what the rationale for that or how would they I mean because Chris and I were both doing things, you know. Uh, uh, you know, having success in Indiana earlier on in our careers. And then, you know, we both kind of had gone international by this point. I, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know what, what prompted it, or I don't know, like, you know, I don't even remember how it came together, but yeah, I was at AMC at the time. Um, gosh, that was like what March of nine or uh, March of, uh, 2002, 2003. Right, maybe. Like, Chris, Chris, you, you, you said you, you had considered once upon a time maybe making 155, but I think there is a little bit of a size difference between you two. Uh, just just throwing that out there for that fight. I think I was the matchmaker on this one. <laughs> and we yeah, I, I, don't as, as, I don't remember how it came together either. Uh, well, I, I worked either. with Chris, and, and Chris was, you know, already moving on internationally. Aaron also moving on internationally. And there comes a point where we are either going to do international fights or not. And we did book it as as the the for the for the pride of Indiana. It was the way Jeff did the advertising for for okay for the number one fighter in Indiana because you were both from there. But everybody, you know, it, it was probably a fight that more people in Japan cared about <laughs> at the time probably. than in Indiana, really. You know what I mean? So it was definitely uh, for that reason. 
you know, sorry guys. You know, in a fight like that, um, man, we could have fought 10 times and we're probably going to have eight to 10 different outcomes because we fought the same, you know, it was going to be going there and bang heads until something happened. So um, I just had how everything played out that night, but I knew it could have went many different ways. It's how it played out, man. And you, you never know, but uh, I was, uh, like I said, a huge um, fan of the, of the style of Aaron. I always liked uh, watching him. Not. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, you like, if you don't like it, you don't like yeah. fighting. So <laughs> definitely somebody I want to be fighting like, and uh, I was super excited to get in there and, and beat each other up. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, for, I mean, you did most of the beating that night, man. I, but, uh, fortunately, I got lucky, you know, it happens. But. Yeah, and also, man, I'm going to have to trademark that uh, that quote too and put make a t-shirt. If you don't like Aaron Riley fights and you don't like fighting. Yeah, Ryan, I mean, man, that was uh, 100% true. You, you, you know what the unfortunate <laughs> part is? Like, the fanfare of Aaron Riley is just for, like, us dorks. You know, it's... Probably the people that go and approach you is probably ninety percent dudes. You know, <laughs> about your fight career. You know, it's it's well, not easy. But like, hey, when you look you at know, your, Aaron's sneaky with the ladies. Don't don't, don't, don't do look, it. When you look at Aaron's <laughs> body of work on the independent scene, man, is it impressive? It really is. It's very like, very I, impressive. I remember I remember hearing Jeff tell a story about like I, I think it was after the Lawler fight where. Like, like he was contacted by somebody that wanted to either get you to train his kid or like have privates like for his kid. And, you know, the, the reason it was noteworthy is, is you're getting fight or, or rather job offers coming off a loss. You know, that's yeah. kind of a, a, I don't want to, I don't know if talent's the right word, but you know, not the, the, it's something that is important is, is if you can impress in a loss that that gets some miles on there too. And unfortunately that, that's what happened in some of those. Yeah. The Lawler yeah. one was one that, you know, how can you forget that fight? So, well, I mean, Mike. both, both him and I lost our fight to Lawler, but I think both of our stock went up after those fights. You yeah. know, I think people saw like, Oh, these guys can fight. You know, it, 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 I liked it because it was a little bit more of that pride Japanese style of hey these guys can fight it didn't didn't matter as much some, some it seemed like you lose that's it it doesn't matter but if you lose like that people still like you even more so your stock both of our stock went up in losses I think it's a good thing right you know it's like very rarely do you get like both combatants on a podcast let alone both combatants and the matchmaker <laughs> like we got. We got all three. You know, everybody, you know, had their hands dirty in this fight with the exception <laughs> of myself. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, they're all friends here and stuff like that. But before the fight, you know, I, I think that there was a healthy amount of respect from both guys that they would. But that there was a little bit of tension, like they stayed away from each other. They weren't friendly. Like, hey, they're sitting around chatting before the fight that at that time. And afterwards, the emotions kind of ran wild and like. The wives kind of got into it for a minute and stuff like that. So, yeah. <laughs> the thing is, my 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 sister in law is my wife's sister okay. who okay. She tends to get in some uh, some problems. I, all I know is I remember seeing them getting escorted out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, that's about right. Southside hooligans from Indianapolis get kicked out. So, so <laughs> the women got into a fist fight in this in in the audience. Is that what you're saying? I don't know exactly. I remember a fight. I no, I, I think it was actually on the ring apron, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Aaron, what's, what's your take before? on this? What's your take on this, Aaron? What's your old lady say? 
what do you remember? Do you, I mean, at that point, kind of, you know, it, it slowed down. But lucky Aaron's mom didn't get involved. She would have thrown some people around. She'd have thrown her across. <laughs> the yeah, man, you never know. I mean, uh, no, th- at that point, um, I was dating. The funny thing is, is like at that point, um, I was dating a-, a girl from Seattle, and she was a kickboxer. She was like Matt, one of Matt's prize students, actually. So she just knew that that's the way the ball bounces sometimes uh, you like in a fight. So, I mean, like she was just supportive and just was like, Oh, that sucks. But that's, you know, she knew how that stuff goes. So it wasn't for us. It was just kind of a a rough day, but you know, you bounce back and you know, if you're a real fighter, you, you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, train hard and go back and do it again. So, so so if I may kind of translate what, what Aaron just said, what Aaron just said, for like for us is that Chris, your sister-in-law may have fought a ring card girl. It wasn't the girl he was with. No, I think I think I it was no part, of, a, I mean, I think it was part of Aaron's Indiana contingent. I think Aaron. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, listen, fun. man. I, I'm like I'm a promoter. What happened, dude? I'm a promoter here in the Chicagoland area. I'm just trying to get a rematch. That's all I'm trying to do at this point. So, I, I was there. Let me have my memories, dude. Come on. <laughs> so, you, you know, uh, your 29th recorded fight is against a guy that, in my opinion, doesn't get enough respect, uh, and that's uh, Nuri uh, Shakir. Oh, yeah, Nuri. In, in hook and shoot. And, you know, he and Steve Berger uh, fought twice. They split it one and one. But even in that first fight, like, he had Berger rocked, like, on more than one occasion. Um, going into that fight, did you have concerns with his stand-up? Uh, no, maybe I should have, but I, I – uh, no, you know what's funny? I saw him fight Tiago Alves about two months before that in, in Florida. And, man, he gave Tiago – but see, Tiago Alves wasn't the pit bull that we know today. He was just some young kid from Brazil that I saw. Like, so I've come to respect more Nori more like later now, but man, like looking back on it, like, yeah, he fought me like two or three months after he just took Pitbull Alves to a draw. Maybe if I'm not mistaken, um, or maybe he even beat him on a decision. Really? I mean, I don't recall exactly, but you guys can check that out online real quick, but man, it was a, uh, it was a, t- I mean, or maybe it was a very close fight and Nuri did really, really well, but man, I don't know. I mean, I just looked at it and was like, well, I'm going to smash him. I don't care what Tiago did. I'm going to knock him <laughs> out. So I was, I just like, that was my outlook on it. So what of Chris's like famous quotes that, that dude, I just, it, it, it makes me giggle when, when I hear him come out of his mouth is, you know, Chris will say, you almost have to, in order to be a great fighter, you have to be delusional. <laughs> do you think, do you agree with that statement? I, I, do you think that comes let, into play here? Let me here? preface that a little bit. Let me kind of, I, I say, no, you have to be able to go out there and lose horribly and, and what, and, and just be like, yeah, the next guy, I'm going to, I'm going to kill those guys. I, you have to believe you can beat anybody in the world unquestionably. And I can tell you think the same way. Yeah, I did because I just, I don't know. People would say stuff like they would say, they, you know, friends, you watch UFC with friends and then Mark Kerr would just smash. Some, I mean, no, Mark Kerr is like the monster. 
in UFC like 15 and then, you know, buddies from high school I'd watch UFC with and they'd be like, what if you had to fight him? And then I'd be like, well, I guess he'd get his ass kicked pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, that's just like how you think, you know? Yeah, I'll, I'll find a way to win, you know, is what you got to think. And people like look at it and you're like, you have to be delusional and believe that. And I think you do, you know. So if you, I don't know how you go into a fight if you don't think you're going to win it. You know what I mean? I'd be scared to death if I didn't think I was going to win. You know, so that's delusional. So uh, Pride Japan, you fought uh, Michihiro Omegawa. Yep. Where does that fight rank in your eyes in terms of your career? It's the number one fight. That's what I figured. Wow, nice. Nice. Yeah, that, that, and my 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 third fight in UFC, those are kind of a tie, um, because you know, the the win in Pride was just everything. I mean, you know, I, I it was the typical Japan situation. Chris can completely uh, you understand, and he'll vouch for this. I was in uh, I was up in Seattle, Washington. I, I flew back up there to hang out with some friends. I was living. Um, at that point, uh, let's see, I was in Florida. I was living in Florida, but I had gone up to visit some friends. There's this massive uh, 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 festival in eastern Washington called the Apple Blossom Festival. So we went over to that, and dude, I'm over at the Apple Blossom Festival having a grand old time, like drinking, eating elephant ears at the carnival. <laughs> dude, just not thinking. You're in the wet market. You're in the wet market looking for bats. Oh, dude, yeah, I'm just going nuts. <laughs> and then the next day, like, you know, that's like it was the, over the weekend. Then on Monday morning, uh, I'm staying with Dennis Hallman. And then, like, I hear the phone ringing at, like, I don't know, 5 o'clock in the morning or something. Ooh. And then um, Dennis Hallman throws the door open in my room, and he just throws a phone, and it hits me. <laughs> and then, like, he just walks off. And like, cause it's so early and I'm like, what the hell's going on? So I just picked the phone up and it's, it's Laborio. It's Ricardo Laborio down in Florida. And he just, he's so excited. He can't even talk. And he's just, by the way, and I said, what, what, what are the hell, what are you saying? And he just said, you're, you're fighting in pride, motherfucker. And I was like, what? <laughs> dude, I, I came out of a deep sleep real quick. I was like, what, yeah. what? I just set up and grabbed the phone and said, what are you talking about? And he said, you're, you're fighting in pride. They called, we're going to Japan in like two weeks. And I was like, nice. yeah. So it went from, you know, me partying and drinking beer and eating elephant ears to you got to lose, you know, 15 or 20 pounds and fly <laughs> to Japan in two weeks. Oof. So you know, I think it was actually like 10 days. It wasn't even two weeks. It was like 10 days. So, um, yeah, that uh, that's how I got found out. I was going to do the fight. Uh, was pretty much Laborio told me. I, I mean, I'm completely committed. But, yeah, Laborio tells me I'm doing it. And, um, you know, I uh, – and what I remember distinctly, too, about I get on the plane. I get on the plane. You know, I ended up having to fly over by myself. Uh, Laborio came later. Um I get on the plane, I get seated next to this little old Japanese lady. And as soon as I, she sits down next to me, she starts going. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, she's sick. She's going to get me sick and I'm going to lose. So dude, I cover up with my blanket. I get a blanket and I cover my head under it for the entire 14 hour <laughs> flight. Cause I'm just, I'm like, I don't want to get sick. Uh, oh. 
They, they really How never you, gave. At what point? At what point? Okay, so Laborea calls you and says you're pride, fighting your pride. You're happy now. At what point? After that, did you find out how much you were getting paid and how much were you getting paid? I didn't care. <laughs> of course, no, I know you didn't. It's like he showed up in Japan and he gave him an envelope. He's like, oh, I forgot about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I get paid too. <laughs> yeah, no, I was so amped that, I mean, like, I really, I didn't even care. I mean, I, that was the highest that I had been paid to that point in my career. I mean, because, you know, they, they paid more than UFC. That's why everybody wanted to fight there. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, just that whole thing was just, just, you know, so surreal. And just, I mean, just the way that, you know, like I said, I'm partying 10 days before the fight. I get the call. All of a sudden, like my dream, just this thing that I always dream of in the back of my mind. It's like, hey, it's reality. Bang, bang, bang. Next thing I know, I'm getting ready to walk down to the ring. And I just remember thinking. You know, I didn't get to train for this as well as I wanted. I know I'm not as in good a shape as I wanted to be in, but you know what? He is going to have to kill me to win. <laughs> he is going to have to kill me to win because I did not come all the way over here and I have not been living my whole life up to this exact moment to lose. I'm not losing. I'm winning or I'm going to die in the ring. That was my mindset. And I was just, you know, so I guess that had something to do with why I got so tired, but I still found a way to win that fight. Well, and, you know, let's also talk about how you won. Yeah, yeah. And you, sometimes the story writes itself, you know? Yeah, how, how, how did you win that fight? I mean, you're in Japan, the mecca of MMA. Tell it, tell it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like, so I, you know, we're going back and forth. Now, this guy, like, I, you know, I knew he had tremendous judo background trained by uh, uh, Yoshida. You know, he's super tough. And I'm like, but man, he's got a chin. I like, I keep cracking this kid and his <laughs> hands are like down and it's like, bam, right across the jaw. It's, uh, <laughs> this is like little Mac dude from like uh, Mike Tyson's punch out. He's taking all the shots. <laughs> I mean, I'm where it's like, uh, he's like got that Homer Simpson style where he's just like, you're getting tired of punching this guy. Um, but man, like, um, I land some good shots on him. He's still there. He's still there. And I, and I am getting tired because we're like seven minutes in. You know, at that point, Pride was doing those 10-minute first round, five-minute second round fights. Yeah. Um, it's about seven minutes in. And um, I throw this punch, and it kind of zings past him. It kind of misses him. And for whatever reason, like, I, I, I – the punch misses, but with my other hand, I grab the back of his head and I keep his head down. And then I do like a switch step, like a kickboxing switch step. And I think he lost sight of my foot. And then I, so I'm holding his head down with one hand and I let it up. And then as his head starts following up, I follow it up with my foot. And man, it was just picture perfect ending. I kick him right in the jawline. He just crumples to the mat. And that's not good enough for me. I mean, I just jump on him like, ah, you know, I'm trying to make sure this fight is definitely finished. The referee grabs me in a chokehold and is dragging me off. Man, it was just like, there's no way that fight could have been topped, uh, really, in my mind. It could have been like, I guess, a little bit more like back and forth because I was kind of laying waste to the guy. And the, But I mean, as far as just like picture perfect endings, I mean, there's no... There's nothing better, uh, no better way to, for me to have won that fight in my mind. And how many people were at that event? Do you remember? Was it one of the big ones? Thousand. That one. That was a smaller arena for Pride, but I mean, there were still 
there were, th- I mean, there were thousands. There was probably, I mean, it's probably like a solid, like, you know, like, I don't know, 14,000 people or something. It was a big event. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, and you know, like, that, that's kind of like when you were a kid, you said, you know, you're, you're 12 years old going, that's what I want to do. You know, if you're in the World Series, you got a bases loaded, bottom of the ninth home run to win. I mean, that's yeah. essentially what you did there. <laughs> I, I yeah. could, I probably should have just retired from MMA at that point, man, because it like it, it it couldn't have got any better in my mind. The well, high, go out on the high note. Yeah, he didn't though, Chris. He went back to the UFC and he fought Spencer Fisher. Ooh, yeah, that's good. That's right, what? I did. Yeah, if we're going chronological, that's true. I went back. Um, I went back in 2000 because this is the thing. I kind of waited around. I kind of waited around for pride to call. And then they didn't, they can't, they, they didn't call back right away. And I was like, well, what the hell? I thought I'm supposed to go over and give a great performance. And you guys are going to call me back. I uh, dude, I'm just sitting there twiddling my thumbs. And in the mean, I didn't have an exclusive contract with pride by any means. That was a one fight deal, I guess. Um, so you know, I'm yeah, you expect to call back, yeah, of course. Yeah, and I'm just kind of waiting, Especially and I never performance. call. I never yeah. call. And um, then UFC calls, and they're like, "Hey, you want to come back to UFC?" And it's like, "Well, I mean, I just had a win <laughs> in the biggest show in the world. I might as well go get, uh, you know, start, you know, getting wins in the in the show that you know I, I didn't have a win in UFC yet. So it's like, well, hell." I definitely want to get a win there. So I definitely want to come back to UFC. So that was kind of the uh, driving force for that. No, no exclusive contract with pride. Yeah, sure. I'll come back and fight in the UFC. That was a one fight deal as well. That was, that was an exclusive contract. That was just a one fight deal with UFC also. So that was a different time frame. They weren't locking people down as much. Yeah, Chris, you remember that's, I mean, things were a little bit different back then. Like you're saying, nobody really had exclusive contracts. You know, I don't understand why. I mean, especially once they figured out exclusive contracts only help them. I mean, if they like you, they kept you, and they had you at a cheaper rate. If they if they didn't, they cut you. So after they figured that out, it was different. But I mean, yeah, you could fight for anybody back in the day. You know, you fight UFC, Pride, Pancrates, WBC, whatever. I mean, it was just it was a different time, like you said. Yeah. Now, now uh, Spencer Fisher. You had your jaw broken in that bout again. I did. Wow. Yeah, that was the that was the first time that uh, that my jaw was was broken. Um, now that happened, I believe it was like towards the end of the first round. Now it was weird. Like again, I'd had injury, like the Eve Edwards injury, but when my jaw got broken, it was a way different experience. It was such a weird sensation because I mean, like. You know, I don't know, like, because when I got cracked, it was just off a weird punch, too. If somebody didn't know any better and they were watching that fight, they probably couldn't pick out the punch that did it. Um, really? Yeah, it's a strange looking. It was just a strange little weird, tweaky punch. And it, it, and but when it happened, I felt like that the best way I can describe it is I felt like a wisdom tooth in the back of my mouth, like exploded. I, I, I was like, what the hell happened to my face? <laughs> like. It's the weirdest feeling. But then I took a step back after the punch landed and I opened my mouth and I felt my jaw like physically like separate. Like I felt the I felt what I opened my mouth and I felt it pull apart and go back Uh. together. And I was like, ooh, that's not good. (laughs) Something's wrong. Yeah. You you know the wild part is usually when guys get their jaw broke, they tend to either slow down 
or the you know they wake up and people tell them what exactly just took place where you, you never really like missed your your beat on it you know like it just you kind of i mean you dealt with it but then you went into the corner to figure it out um do you have a really high pain tolerance as well i guess i mean i it hurt i mean it definitely hurt but i just I don't know, man. I just—I guess I just never wanted to be perceived like like a wimp or a quitter. So I just always kind of, I mean, seriously, those are the thoughts that would go through my head. Like I knew my jaw was broken, but the thought that was flashing through my mind when I was walking back to the corner was Muhammad Ali got his jaw broken. He didn't quit. Because I mean, that, that was like a thought going through my head when I was walking back to the corner because I knew for certain my jaw was broken. And Howard Davis Jr. was in my corner for that fight. And um, I, I told Howard, I said, hey, I think my jaw's broken. And then he's and then he kind of like, oh, oh, man. So he, he got the doctor to come over. And then they evaluated it and then they actually stopped it. I mean, I didn't want to stop because, again, would, I didn't want to seem like a wimp. Now, you know, your jaw was Muhammad broken. Ali didn't stop. Would you have come out for round two? Like if the doctor hadn't said anything? I mean, I like in my mind, I felt like I would have. Now, later on in my career, it happened again. And then at that point, I was just frustrated and angry because I knew what the recovery entailed. And uh. I was just so disgusted. The second time it happened that I was like, the hell with this. Throw in the like, I'm just done. I was mad and angry because I knew what it was going to consist of at that, that second time. Uh. But going back to this first time, I mean, I'm not sure. I just remembered thinking, I mean... There was too much. There was kind of so much going on in my head, and you only have a minute to make up your mind. So you know, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, like I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm doing this thing on my phone, and people keep sending like, 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 like mess Facebook messengers. <laughs> I hope that's not interrupting, or you guys. No, no, oh, keep going. Yeah. It's killing me. So anyway, but uh, yeah, so. But, uh, I, you know, you only have a minute to make up your mind. And, um, you yeah, know, I, 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 I don't want to joke around, Eric, but the right answer for this question was, of course, I wouldn't have come out. I would have worried about my jaw and I would have stopped the fight myself. And you're still 20 years late. You know, 50 you're years struggling. Late of, so that says you, you, it all, my friend. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Aaron, Aaron you, you, for the last two minutes, you've struggled to figure out whether it is or not, dude, believe me, you, you were going back out. In that <laughs> I, was, I, mean, I was going I back out, you guys. You. I was just like, the hell yeah, with I'm this. Sure. No broken jaw, be damned. I'm going out and knocking this guy out. So, yeah, next question. I see. Hey, <laughs> real quick, Spencer Fisher was another one of those guys I, I really enjoyed watching fight, man. That yeah. dude always brought a good fight. He always put on entertaining fights. Yes, sir. Yeah, Chris, I'm surprised you, you you two never matched up, even though, I mean, he, he fought at 70 for a while. Well, he's uh, mainly 55, was he not? He When he got to the big show, he was, but on the independent scene, he, he, he was up at 70. I mean, I think even when he started he his career, he was like two plus, 200 plus. What? So, yeah, he came down. Huh. Yeah, I think that he debuted in UFC against Tiago Alves at 170. He actually at 170. He triangle choked. He triangle choked Tiago Alves. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So after that, you're talking about another broken jaw type situation. You kind of dwelled on a little bit. Eddie Alvarez. Was was that Anthony Smith in your corner for that fight? 
Benji Raddick. And it was Benji Raddick. It was Benji. I, I mistook him for Anthony Smith. It is okay. Benji Raddick. Okay. Okay. Now that's, I believe, in Costa Rica. Am I correct? That one was in Vancouver. That one was in Vancouver, okay. British, British Columbia. We had a, uh, we got hit with a massive snowstorm like right that same weekend. It was pretty wild. He fought Daryl Smith for Bodog, I think, in Costa Rica as a right. warm up fight and then fought Alvarez like for, in the inaugural title fight there uh, in the Vancouver, which was the first pay per view there. Right. In, uh, was your job broken in exactly the same place or a different spot? That second time it happened? Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, obviously, yeah, we're passing the Alvarez fight and jumping a little bit. Well, Alvarez, it looked like you had a broken jaw on Alvarez. No, 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 Alvarez, no, 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 no. What happened was I got really rocked. And then, but what I did was I was worried about it and I was feeling it out. Even though my brains were scrambled, I still had enough good sense to go, oh, well, is my jaw okay? And then Radix said, hey, is it feel okay? Is it okay? Because he knew that he knew immediately what I was doing when I did that. And then I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And then he was like, oh, okay, good. I mean, whatever. I mean, you know, th that's what was going on right there. Okay. I, I mistook it for a broken jaw. And honestly, that's, that's what I thought you were talking about. Um, who do you think you hit harder, Eddie Alvarez or Robbie Lawler? Ooh, that's tough. I mean, but ah. – Robbie's bigger, so man, maybe he might. But if you look at their KO ratios, they're both super <laughs> high. But man, I don't know. Maybe Lawler. Uh, it's just Lawler and I. We got in a in a clinch, like you know the typical under over under. And Robbie, you know how everybody just clubs away <laughs> at the sides when you're stuck in that over under. I mean, it looks like you know it's really kind of nothing. You're just doing it to stay busy. Yeah. Well, Robbie and I were stuck in that position. And he was hitting me with hooks to the body from that little over-under. And I was like, damn, even that hurts. So, <laughs> I mean, that was weird, man. Like, Robbie really, really hit hard. Yeah. He was a strong individual. I remember I was trying to get him a guilty, and I was on the ground, and he, like, picked me up by my foot and threw me over like that. I was like, okay, he's, he's strong. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. going to have to go to – plan B is going to have to come into play. Plan A is not going to work <laughs> So then, like, I, I'm looking at, obviously, your, your career here, and Ryan Schultz pops up, and yeah. he's certainly somebody that I was shocked didn't make a UFC debut. I think there were some politics that took place with the Ultimate Fighter and him, um, but Ryan Schultz, I, I, I could not believe, uh, didn't make a UFC debut, but you fought him with the IFL. How was your experience with the IFL? Was it a short Notice fight, or was it something that you had trained? It was just for? the one fight. Was I mean, it short I notice? I had time to prepare for that fight. Um, okay. But I just, I feel like looking back at it, in in the back of my head, I feel like there was maybe a little bit of ring rust. I can't remember the the interim. Uh, like like I can't remember how much time it elapsed between. Ten months. Like the fight I had before I fought Schultz, but I kind of felt like I had a hard time kind of pulling the trigger. I wasn't just like kind of really because I wobbled him with a head kick at one point. He kind of blocked it, but I kind of wobbled him with it and I should have kind of followed up a little bit more. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, like, I just felt like I just had like kind of an off night and I really wasn't putting things together super well. Um, you know, but he's a super tough fighter, so I'm not trying to take anything away from him, but definitely feel like that was a winnable fight for me. Had I just, you know, been a little more aggressive or played a little, maybe a little smarter game, hadn't given up as many takedowns as I did or something, you know, it, it was a good fight. You know, you've fought in a ton of different camps and I was always surprised that you never showed up over at team quest. Uh, yeah. I mean, it just never kind of came together. I mean, I, once I, well, I escaped the Pacific Northwest, I kind of didn't have a big <laughs> desire to get back out there. Um, yeah, like I, I hated the weather out there, man. I hated it with a passion. I bet. Yeah. Florida's a little better. <laughs> yeah. I was definitely, yeah. Florida's a lot better. Yeah. Oh, for sure, man. And then what about Tiago, uh, Tiago Minu? He's a black belt from Brazil under Hermes Franca. I had thought that possibly, you know, that ATT connection may have stopped something from that from happening, but it didn't. I wasn't at ATT anymore at that point. Now that here's a real interesting side note that you might not even have, you know, a record of there. I had moved to Virginia, I had moved to the state of Virginia and I was like, I'm trying to remember like what the last fight was before it. I was gone. I moved up to, to Virginia. You had Jeff Gordon, you had Jeff Gordon camp. And then like it was Mark Delagrate was your corner. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause I spent time training at Mark's gym. I originally had moved to, uh, to Virginia cause I was looking at pursuing executive protection work, like bodyguarding work. Um, I was going to kind of retire from fighting. But then I kind of got roped into being a, an MMA instructor because the company that I was kind of working with, they were a little slow on getting me gigs at the time. So I kind of started teaching. I started getting paid better for that. So I kind of just switched over and kind of started teaching, then kind of got the bug to fight again. But I was trying to find a good gym to train at because I had kind of jujitsu guys by themselves. And I had kind of like Muay Thai guys by themselves to train with in Virginia, but I, there wasn't like, I feel like any really strong MMA school at, there at that moment. So I kind of did some, some traveling around and went to a couple different gyms on that side of the Mississippi, I guess I went to, uh, went to Minnesota for a, a second and trained at Greg Nelson's and had a good, good time out there. Uh, I, I went to Matt Sarah's, uh, in, uh, then I went to Boston as well. And I don't know, I, I hit it off with Mark and things went well. So I went up there and trained with Mark to get ready for that Tiago Manu fight. Uh, Mark didn't corner me for that fight, but um, we, um, but yeah, I had a really, a really good training camp out of Delaware. Oh, you had a good training camp with Mark Delagrate. Sorry, you broke up, buddy. Yeah, that's 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 the gym I was I was preparing uh, for that right. for that Tiago Manu fight was at Delagrate's. And then you, you, you make a, a UFC return after that against uh, Shane Nelson. And I, I, I'm going to say a name um, that I, I guarantee I'm going to get a reaction out of. Referee uh, Rick Fike. Yeah. You know what's funny is uh, Rick Fike had a, uh, a, a scene. You know that movie Warrior? I think it was the movie Warrior with, uh, with Tom, Tom Hardy and all those guys or whatever. Oh, yeah. Well, Rick Fike, it's funny. He played a referee in that movie. 
And uh, if you ask me, that's the only business Rick Fike ever has being a referee is pretending <laughs> to be one. Because, man, man, that was the worst stoppage in the history of UFC. It was pathetic. Anybody that has ever seen that fight, like Rogan's commentary on that is just hilarious, man. Like, it's just, oh, gosh, it, that was... I mean, it was just awful. I don't know. There's no other way to describe it. And of course, the icing on the, you know, the cherry on top was, you know, he came backstage as this is kind of the custom at UFC. The, the referees come back and speak to the fighters that, you know, whose bouts are going to rest. Yep. Now, what did this guy say? Well, he came back and he said, now, look, I'll let fights go. I, you know, I want you guys to fight it out when you're in there. I'm not. One of these guys is going to just jump in and stop stuff. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. No, it was like prophetic. It was crazy because he did the complete opposite of exactly you know, what he said. It was oh, ridiculous, man. He went the pro wrestling route. huh? Yeah, he, he, cut, he cut a promo and flopped. Yeah, that yeah. was uh, so, so. So, Chris, to kind of wrap that fight up in a nutshell, bell rings uh, on the first exchange. Uh, you know, Aaron gets cracked. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. He gets hit, but it's not like he recovers. No, no, he got hit and dropped, but was never in trouble. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like there was like a weird, like body movement. None of that took place. He just, yeah. I think you were a little off balance. You took well, what happened was I threw a kick. He right. caught my kick. He threw a punch. I'm standing on one freaking leg, man. Yeah, balance. I'm going to get... Yeah. I get knocked down, but here's the thing. I, I hit, I land on my butt and I kind of skidded back. Shane Nelson takes off running and I, I, I turn my back. So, I mean, I don't completely turn my back, but I'm kind of turning to kind of get up off the mat. Shane does a full body tackle. He just tackles me like football. And then that, of course, knocks me face first into the mat. I regain my guard. And by the time that I regain my guard, in the amount of time that he tackled me, knocked me face first into the mat from the initial butt scoot, the ref just jumps in and goes, that's it, that's it. And he just calls it off. And I'm completely clear eyed. And I just uh, look him in the face from on my back, pull my mouthpiece out and I scream, what in the fuck are you doing? And I think <laughs> at that point he could probably tell I was kind of losing, uh, you know, I was pretty with it. I was pretty there. Yeah. I wasn't loopy or not or knocked out. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, like, you can tell a lot about a fighter, about how they handle adversity. And I'm not just talking about in a win or a loss, but, like, when a situation like that comes about, the amateurs will be screaming at the top of their lungs, being, like, emotionally, like, uncontrollable. But yeah. you gave them the, what do you do and talk? And you went out there and you let Shane get his hand raised, but you were mad about it. And the UFC sees that and they go, wait a minute. He went through with the show. You know, we all know what took place. Anybody with a working retina understands what took place. But at the end of the day, you stood there disappointed and go, okay, go ahead and complete, you know, complete the, uh, the process. And certain guys don't do that. And, you know, it's to their detriment because, man, there's replay, there's announcers, Anybody with like, like, like good vision can under, and, and knowledge of the sport can see what happened. And did Dana White have a conversation with you backstage after that? Because you also had an immediate you you pretty much rematched him a couple of events later. 
Yeah, um, that was my next event. Yeah, I came back. Um, anyhow, what happened was uh, they recognized, you know, Joe interviewed me in the ring, you know, and I, I got to give my thoughts on it. Uh, the cool thing was Joe Silva kind of did some some talking for me, and I was actually paid my win bonus by UFC that night. I got oh, my show yeah. bonus. Yeah, so that was really cool. Um, I, I got paid my, you know, my show money. I got paid the win bonus, even though, you know, they just, you know, Silva went to bat for me, talked to Dana and said, Hey man, come on. That was, that was terrible. You know, it helped the guy out. So Dana was like, you know, yeah, sure. And, you know, so they gave me my win bonus. So that really helped to like, that helped to like soften it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, I was definitely happy to be able to kind of exact my revenge on him next time in my next fight in UFC. Now, you only really had one exchange with the guy, and obviously, you know, nothing was settled. But going into the rematch, did you have, like, a little bit more confidence because you felt his power and you felt his strength? Oh, yeah. I had zero. I was not worried about him at all. I was so ready to just, I mean, just steamroll him that I was not, I mean, you know, yeah, you got to have some concern and not just, you know, walk into it. But I mean, dude, I was not worried. I was completely confident because I was like, you're not stronger than me. You don't have more power than me. You don't hit hard because the punch that stopped, I mean, that was not, you know, I was very confident and I just, you know, I wasn't overconfident, but I was just like, dude, I, I'm going to just blast you. Mm. And, and, you know, let's, let's talk about the elephant in the room. You also broke the UFC curse. You got your win. Well, yeah, my my win. Well, here's the thing. Well, um, you beat Gurgel. Yeah, that was Gurgel was my was my oh, third. You know what? Third fight. I apologize. I, I, you know what? I, I don't have that fight written down. I skipped over that fight. You are correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got your second UFC win. Okay, <laughs> stay well, corrected. Yeah. And you went into the that Gurgel fight as an underdog too. If, if, not to, I I stepped away for a second. I thought you had covered it already, but if you missed it. Joe was kind of a he was hot prospect. Ohio, he was out of Ohio, but he had he had built up a little bit of a reputation, and he had also trained with guys that you you were aware of, like Marcus Aurelio and guys like that from Top Team. Yeah, and, I mean, and George Franklin. had been on the show. George had been on Ultimate Fighter. He also had that connection with Rich Franklin. I mean, Rich used to. As far as I know, and as far as I remember correctly, Fra uh, Rich Franklin used to used to uh, you like uh, acknowledge George Jujel as his jujitsu instructor. He so was that kind of yeah. That he worked out at his gym. Yeah, you know Rafferty as well, who was on the Ultimate Fighter season one. That was one of Gurgel's guys. Kerry uh, Shaw was one of Gurgel's guys. Like he he had like strong style is is very you know a well known name in like the Cleveland area. But outside of Cleveland, man, it was George Gurgel. I mean, that's mm -hmm. he, he pretty much ran Ohio. You, know, you got Dustin Ware, that that's you know out there as well in the Columbus area. Um, no, it's it's yeah, Ohio. Ohio was a hotbed for MMA. It, it was um, a good win. Yeah, very good win, very good win. And um, UFC one thirty five, like you're fighting a murderer's row at, at this point. <laughs> uh, they put you up with uh, Tony Ferguson, right? Now, very awkward style. Another time where I believe your jaw was broken. Yes, no. That's right. Yeah, okay. it was the, there it was we the go. Fisher fight. The first I thought it was fight. three. I thought yeah. it was three. My fault. I stand corrected. Yeah, really, really quick here, Aaron. You know, we'll always give you props for your 
for your cardio and stuff like that, right? But uh, now here you're getting closer to the end, and Ferguson's kind of like a you know you're an old school guy. Is Ferguson was he like a 2.0 model? Did you have that feel? Like was he or or did you feel like uh, if he had broken your jaw, you were in that fight? How do you feel? I I'm curious. I'm just no. I felt I felt fine in that fight, and I mean if. I felt like had that not happened, I really felt like I was in some of the best condition. Um, and if you, if you watch the fight again, I mean, I don't feel that I was doing like badly before that. No. I, mean, I was moving my head and avoiding punches. I mean, earlier in my career, I used to like eat a lot of punches, but <laughs> I mean, I was slipping. I was, I was like, we were going back and forth. I mean, I felt like it was shaping up to be a great fight. You know, women were still filling each other out and kind of getting rolling. And then that 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 crazy weird uppercut just sneaks in, you know, did the damage. And then, you know, I'm fighting a defensive fight from then on because, you know, I'm just trying to not take more damage and get popped yeah. again. So, you know. Ferguson is, uh, he's special. He's legitimately, like, he's just a special fighter. And, you know, what I noticed in that first round was, he caught that you were southpaw and he saw that you were loading up. And I'm sure, I mean, there's a ton of tape on you as well. I mean, let's yeah. not pretend there isn't at this point. And he, he was starting to adjust to it. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was kind of just a strange thing. Like you were hundred percent in that fight. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Justin. Well, Salas. that's the thing is that was well before Ferguson's run, you know? So that I, my next quite my follow-up is, is, like, how do you feel like watching him go on a run like that at that point? Do you root for him or do you not? This, no, I root really for Tony. I mean, I we spoke after the fight. Like, he came backstage after and, like, you know, he just said, hey, man, you know, are you, are you doing okay? How are you doing? I just said, oh, my jaw's a little bit sore. Because he, I mean, he knew that, like, it was broken. So he just kind of was like, oh, uh, yeah, man, I bet. You know, we just kind of, <laughs> you know, we, we kind of hit it Small off a little time. bit. So, you know, I mean, I respected him. And, you know, I, I wasn't angry. It's just the way that it goes sometimes. And oh, I cheered for, you know, I was, I liked seeing him do well, you know, because I mean, what am I going to, it's like, I don't want him to go out and just get destroyed the next fight because <laughs> yeah. I want him to win the title, man. That makes me look better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course. No, now, it's, it, it's funny. But, and on the day of, you got the whole baggage of fuck. I got to rehab a broken jaw again, man. So yeah. It's yeah, lots yeah. Of How long does that yeah. take? Oh, well, the, it, man, it's the most claustrophobic thing in the world because you get, you, they, it's like you get braces basically put on like the iron stuff and then they like, they run these things through it. So then your mouth is like this and you can't open your mouth. You have to find a way to eat with your mouth closed like this. You have to learn to talk like this. And so just close your mouth and then think, how am I going to eat now? I, it, it's crazy. <laughs> For how long was it? How long? Six weeks? I, I think that it's, yeah, I think it's something like that. It's over a month. And it's yeah. just the most claustrophobic feeling in the world as it is, just knowing you can't open your mouth. I started having like an anxiety attack at one point because I was like, oh my God, I just, I can't open. And then I had to like <laughs> walk myself down from the ledge, man. It's nuts. You know, wow. you know what's crazy? Chris, you know what's crazy? And I know this, this, this podcast is about Aaron, but I, and I'm going to inject a little bit of myself in this. I've seen three different people have broken jaws that freaked out so much that they went and removed the wires themselves. They said, I Are don't you care. kidding me? No, they, they just said, I'll deal with a crooked jaw. I can't do it. I can't do it. Wow. You know, they were tired of blending their food and drinking it through a straw. 
Um, you know, protein shakes give you diarrhea because you can only have one in a row. You have more than one in a row. You start to get diarrhea. Like it is, it is an ugly process. It is like a form of psychological torture, man, to go through that. I did an interview <laughs> with, uh, with, uh, 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 Ben Falks. He's like, he's, he would write, uh, he's pretty, uh, prominent MMA writer. Uh, and man, I, he was interviewing people that had suffered that injury. And it's just like, it's not just a physical injury. It's like a psychological injury, man, because like we eat food all the time. Right. And there's food that's called comfort food. Why yeah. is it called comfort food? <laughs> Makes you feel better. Yeah, dude. When you can't eat anything, man, you start losing your marbles, dude. It's crazy. Nuts. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the only thing I've ever remotely comparison that I could see was I, I had a guy have a horrible, horrible broken nose. And uh, when he came back from the hospital, the, the show was still going on. He, when he came back from the hospital, his nose was packed, obviously, and stuff like that. And they had to put, like, a stabilizer so that he wouldn't move his head. So he had, like, <laughs> screws. And My nose? A, a, a thing. Yeah, it was really badly broken up. Wow. There's David Avalon. He broke it against Anthony Rea. Uh, the fight's on the internet. It's a bloodbath. But, uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you fight with Justin Salas. The one thing that, that really stands out in that bout is that, again, you've got a legendary corner in Greg Jackson. And, in your other, and across the ring, it's Trevor Whitman and Justin's. Corner. I mean, both trainers are incredible and have made, obviously, uh, a huge name for themselves in the sport. What was your time like at Jackson's? It was great. I, I felt like they had a great team atmosphere there. Um, I loved, I loved it out there. I mean, I really, um, it was a great fit. I always tell people, I always felt like gyms, gyms for people were kind of like a pair of shoes because like there's a million different pairs of shoes because they fit everybody differently. And like MMA gyms are the same, you know, you kind of just find, you know, I don't know. You kind of, it's like they can be good with coaching and whatever, but if, it's, if it doesn't fit you, then, I don't think it's in your best interest to train there, but I felt like Greg's was a great fit. I just really, um, you know, Joe daddy was there a lot. Clay Guida was there at that point. Um, you know, Cub Swanson, Isaac Valley flag, Melvin Gillard was in and out a little bit and then kind of took off. But those were my main training partners. In addition to just, you know, the up and comers like Landon Venata was up and coming at that point. Nobody knew him at all. Um, you know, at that point, I mean, he was still new. So there were a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was great. I loved, I loved it out of Greg's. Hmm. Hated New Mexico. I hated Albuquerque, but I really liked the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard it's a, I heard it's a hard place to live. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, hey, would you rather live in like Seattle or would you rather live in Albuquerque? Uh, I'd rather just, if I mean, just live in the gym and not have to be in the city whatsoever of Albuquerque, I probably would have been better. Maybe I go back now because they've got like that. They get those spider dorms now or whatever. So <laughs> hmm. and uh, you're fighting against Steve Claveau. Um You've got you're fighting out of Joe Stevenson's gym. Yeah. And in Steve's corner, he's got George St. Pierre. He does. And he just, dude, it's just legendary corner after legendary corner. Uh, you know, that's one reoccurring theme in, in, in your life. Um, would you mind delving into that fight before we kind of go into our random questions? Yeah, just, um, 
I think I had a new MMA manager at that point. That was like, that was, that was when I was in Virginia. That was at that time frame. Um, and I was, I was trying to build up and go back to UFC. I think I, I, I had had the fight at the, uh, the UWC against Manu. And I think that that fight was the one that put me back in to UFC for the third time, the win in Montreal. It got me back in against Jurgel. Um, I, uh, yeah, the, the, I went, that was my, I, that was my second time in, in, in like, um, in, um, oh, French Canada, what, what, the Quebec. 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 Yeah, I was like, I'm, I'm losing my mind here. Um, but, uh, yeah, in Quebec. So I, uh, first time fighting, second time being there. And I was in Montreal. Uh, the event happened there. Um, man, it, it was a great show. It was a really well done promotion. Um, I didn't know anything about Cluvo. Um, one, one, a, uh, one of the uh, refer, or, uh, like an official, I, I, I don't know, one of the officials, he comes back to me right before I'm getting ready to walk out to the cage. And he just goes, man, this guy you're fighting is, is crazy. He's is crazy guy. He's completely crazy. And I was like, thanks, man. Thanks for telling me that. I mean, I don't know what that's supposed to do or help or whatever. But yeah, well, I do my ring walk. Claveau comes out next. He's got this devil mask on. He's got this crazy intro he's doing. He pulls the mask off. He's got 666 in red, like, dyed into the side of his head. Yeah, he's a Satanist. Crazy mohawk. He's nuts, yeah. man. Yeah. But, really? uh yeah, I, I go, you know, I, I'm like, we're going at it. Joe Daddy's in my corner. He's giving me some solid advice. I'm just trying to smash this guy up. I land a vicious elbow uh, from a clinch, cut him. He's bleeding everywhere. Um, you know, I handle the fight from top to bottom. Goes to, I almost put him out, landed a head kick. I hit him right in the jaw. Same kick that I caught on the Gallo with, but this didn't quite put out Clovo. He, he weathered it. Um, but then after the fight, man, He's just like the funniest, craziest guy. He walks up to me. His nose is like over here. And he just walks up. He goes, man, you mess up my face. My girlfriend is so mad at you. Oh, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then I just, I don't know, man. I'm just so happy I'm on cloud nine because I win the fight that I know is going to put me back in the UFC. And I just looked at him and kind of like hug him. I'm like, I, I, I'm sorry, dude. I don't know. My bad. And then, yeah, it was. And then George looks at me and goes, ah. Oh, my friend, I think you're meant to do it. And then I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I was trying to hurt him, George. You, you got me. That's a pretty yeah. good French accent, my friend. That's a, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good from Indiana. Yeah, like, yeah, like a Pepe Le Pew type. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so what, your cardio is like phenomenal. Is that genetic or do you have a routine that you, you consistently put yourself through? I am telling you, man, that's completely genetic because hearing my dad tell me stories about how he was the best track runner in eighth grade. I'm, tell, I'm like, no, I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. I really did like my dad was a hell of a runner. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if it's like genetic or what, but like I knew that it just never bothered me. I would train. I would train my butt off in the gym but dude i don't know i just i really didn't get very tired so i just kind of just would suck it up and keep going so like i'm kidding but i'm not kidding i'm like i think some of it might be genetic seriously yeah i, I believe that i i got a couple like you your ufc run the final fights in the ufc in that run there i mean you were 2008 to 2013 like 
on their roster and just fighting for them exclusively. And that's pretty much like a, a golden period for the UFC too and stuff. Did, did they ever, like, did you win fighter of the night or did they ever take care of you? I, I think I remember one time they gave the roster, like everybody on the roster, like uh, iPods or iPads or iPhones or something like that. Why, why don't you help me out with some of that? Yeah. So it, it was a, a kind of a golden era of, of, of UFC ownership, I guess we would say, because yeah, we kind of we kind of we kind of missed it in the mix. That UFC ninety one that I returned uh, after the um, I forgot what the fight was before that, but the, but uh, when I went back to UFC, when I went back to UFC for UFC ninety one, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that one I did sign a four fight deal. Okay, that one I did sign a four fight deal, and that. That fight against Gurgel, that is tied probably with my um, with my uh, fight of the, or my um, pride fight, pride fight because uh, I had to miss my sister's wedding for, for because I was in fight camp for that. But but her wedding was like a week before the fight, so I mean I really couldn't. It was really getting crunch time. It was like the serious week, and then the next week was kind of the cruise week. So I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to bring you and your husband to Las Vegas for my fight. Okay. Yeah, because I was staying at George Gurgel, or I was staying at, man, I'm, I'm obviously punch drunk now. I'm mixing <laughs> I was with Joe Stevenson. So it was like easy because we drove from, from Victorville. We drove from Victorville to Vegas. It was like two hours. Um, I so was able, but- UFC enabled me to give away my my UFC uh, ticket, my my flight, and my corner flight. I gave them to my sister and oh, her nice. husband. Yeah, and then I I got their hotel room while I was there, and I kind of was fronting a little bit of money or whatever. I but it worked out that that night when I won, I also won fight of the night. So <laughs> yeah, man, I was able to tr- I was able to kind of give my sister and her and her husband, my brother in law, their honeymoon in Las Vegas. Um, so, you know, and I won, I won my third fight in UFC and I won fight tonight. It was kind of a trifecta. So that was a huge night. That was a great, yeah. that was a great there's night. Also, there's a very strong possibility that that's the same sister that was thrown down for you back in Indiana at that Chris fight. Just, I'm just saying. <laughs> well, all right. So how long were you with the American top team for? About, uh, Let's see, it was 2000, two th- about four years. It was about four years. I, I'm, I was at uh, 2003 to late 2007. Okay, so now you came from <clears> – the, the question is this, dude. Did you ever <laughs> see Hector Lombard and Josh Barnett ever, like, beat each other up in practice? No, I never saw any of that. I just okay. heard stories, but uh, – yeah, share, I, share uh, one with us. Give us. Can a, you give, give us, us just one? one? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, man, you're I, friends uh, with Barnett. I know you're friends with Barnett. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. No, I just remember uh, one time. Uh, okay, this is this is uh, this is interesting. So I was. This is when I'm living in the gym. Okay, I'm living in the gym at AMC Kickboxing. Okay, and. Um, I, uh, I remember like, so Josh is dating this girl named Matoka. Okay. And then, um, 
Josh is kind of giving private lessons to this other girl at the gym named Shannon. Matoka, I mean, she's really pissed that Josh is giving private lessons to this girl, but he's, he, you know, she's kind of letting it happen. Uh, she's, you know, because Josh is making money, he's getting paid to do the lessons, whatever. So, I don't know, I know Josh and Shannon just decided that they were going to go to lunch that day together before they did the private lesson. So I'm like, whatever, whatever you guys are going to do, go ahead. I mean, I'm just, I, like I said, I live in the gym. So just all kinds of people coming and going from the gym all day. So I'm like, I'm like taking a nap at the gym and I hear a knock at the front door and I just wake up and I go to open the front door, but I walk out into like the lobby area. The person that's at the front door can see me. There's no way I can get away. <laughs> it's, it's Matoka. And I'm like, oh no, this is not going to go well. I can already tell. So then I go and I open the door and I'm like, hey, Matoka, how are you doing? She's, Where's he at? And I was like, oh, you mean Josh? Who? Well, where's who at? Yeah. <laughs> who, who <laughs> and then who, I said, <laughs> he said, and I said, uh, oh, um, I don't know. I think he went to dinner with, and he, she went, is he with that bitch? And then I went, uh, yeah, he went to lunch with Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then she just said well that's it I, i'm waiting for him i'm waiting for him and i was like uh oh okay um you know i just i'm compli- like i just woke up man i don't know what's going on hey, so, he's in the sauna um yeah <laughs> dude i so then I, she goes back to her car i was glad she didn't force her way into the gym and just say i'm waiting for him here she goes back <laughs> to her car and she's just she's waiting for him so then my girlfriend, the one that I was talking about from before, Erica, the kickboxer, she comes back to the gym and she's just like, hey, why is Matoka out front? And I'm like, oh, well, that's an interesting story. Let me tell you what's going on. So, it, it, dude, it's like it's like a movie. The minute I get done telling Erica the complete scenario about what's going on and what's happening, Josh pulls back into the parking lot with Shannon. But not only are they in the same car, Shannon is letting josh drive her muscle car uh uh mustang uh yeah so you guys know how this is gonna go yeah so then josh gets out of the car matoka is up in his face he was going shannon is getting out and she starts mouthing off because i think matoka is saying some stuff about uh you know about her too and then those two start (laughs) mouthing they get in each other's face and then they're grabbing each other josh is pulling them apart kind of tell Shannon, go back into the gym, go into the gym. So then as she's, as Shannon's walking off, Matoka sucker punches her in the back of the head. <laughs> and yeah. then Eric is going nuts being like, ah, this is awesome. And she's like looking out the window and I'm like, no, get away, get away. Don't do it. Oh yeah. man, we got to like, don't get involved in this. And then Shannon comes back in. I hear like, then, then, the, you know, Matoka goes ripping ass out of the parking lot. Josh comes in. And he's just like, he punches a hole in the wall. He picks up a ring stool, throws it across the room. And then he's, then he, he round kicks like the the door and he's just destroying everything. And I'm just like, I'm not stopping him. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just standing here. And then finally he stops. (laughs) And then he calms down and whatever, and whatever, uh, uh, eventually, uh, you know, that situation sorted itself out. But what was funny was later that night, um, Matt comes to the gym, like, you know, three, four hours later. 
And then he's he's in there wandering around because he would always come stop by the gym. It was right by. You talking about right Matt Brown, there. Matt who? Uh, Matt Hume. Yeah. Oh, Matt Hume. Okay. Okay. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, and um, he comes in, and then he's like, uh, he starts looking <laughs> around the gym, and he's like, uh, "What? Why are there two holes in the mat? Why is there a broken <laughs> ring stool over here?" And then I'm like, uh, "Well, that's an interesting story." And then I kind of sort of start telling him what happened. Then he looks at the wall. Now, I, I didn't mention that there was like a really rare picture of Matt when he competed in Pancras that he had plastered on the wall. That just so happens to be the place that Josh punched through the picture and punched into the drywall. Yikes. Yeah, Matt sees that. And then he's just like, did Josh do this too? <laughs> and I said, uh, uh. Maybe. I, I think I that think was Matoka. So. Yeah. yeah, I should have thrown her under the bus, man. Or who me? You always got to go to the who me defense at that point. You know? uh, who me? So, 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 what you're telling me is Josh and Matoka are now married happily. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, they worked it all out. You know, five kids, it's, wedding, it's going great. Um, is that Shannon so, uh, Hooper? Yes, sir. I knew no, he, that Miguel would come. Yes. He, look at Matt. Was, he swapped. He swapped. He yes, it's he not, did. He stayed with the training partner is what he did. <laughs> the muscle cut. Let, let, let so me where you. does Hector Lombard work his way into this story? That's way later. That, that I, don't, <laughs> but I also heard. It's just a Josh More yeah, Josh. We're, we're in, but go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I mean, it's just, but the, the, the comical thing to me, was Matt was so furious about what had happened. He just he just started talking. It's like he was talking to me, but he wasn't really. He was talking to himself, and he was just saying, well, I, I'm going to make Josh. He just was just reading off this litany of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to make Josh fix the wall, and I'm going to make Josh get a hammer and break his, his own window out of his car. I'm going to make Josh <laughs> do this. I'm going to make Josh do that. I mean, he was just... I mean, he was losing his mind that Josh came in and disrespected the dojo like that. And I mean, I get where the guy's coming from, but like, it was just, man, it was, I just, it was the most weird situation for me to get stuck in the middle of, because again, I'm like 19 and I'm just like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that, that one would have been better to watch and not participate in. But yeah. let, let me, let me ask you this, Aaron, I, I, and this is kind of a spur of the moment question, but when you look at it, I remember when you fought in the early days in Okinawa and Jeff came back with a really long video of you training with boss Rutan and stuff. So yeah. then we look at boss, we look at Matt Hume, Laborio, the guys that you've trained with across the board and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on these? Who's the best one? Come on. Don't go freezing on us now. <laughs> oh, we, we kind of got a little bit of a freeze, but I'm thinking where you were going there was who was the best coach, right? Yeah, who was the best? Like, you know, I mean, chest to chest. Who for you? Like, who'd you learn the most from, or or who impressed you, or who would you want to fight the least? Good wow, question. man. Okay, straight out of the gates, I would never in a million years want to take Laborio on in jujitsu because he would just flat kill anybody. Um, like, uh, I saw him just fold Jeff Monson up one time, man. I just could not believe what I was seeing. I mean, I saw <laughs> Jeff Monson compete in Abu Dhabi and give all these guys like this amazing run. It's, and then I saw Laborio yeah. just training with him one time. And I was like, Oh my God, this is not real. Like I'm not, this, this is not, this is like the matrix. 
or something different, <laughs> like what I was seeing happen. Like, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I, like, Laborio was, he, for whatever reason, he decided he wanted to spar with me and Dean Thomas one day. We were in the ring. We were in there fighting, sparring with each other. And Laborio was like, I'm going to, I am going to spar with you. I'm going to train with you guys. And I was like, all right, that's cool. And then all he would do is get in and kind of move. Then he would just pin us into the cage. And then the next thing you knew, like my feet would just disappear out from under me. And then I was getting submitted. And I was like, why does this keep happening? Like, I don't know why it's happening. Like, it, that was just strange um, how good he was at jujitsu. Um, Matt was super well-rounded. Greg... Greg didn't train like with the guys a lot. He was mostly coaching, but man, just all those guys had some amazing abilities. I mean, that's why they're in those coaching positions. I mean, Delagrati, like they, they all, they all had things that were just, you know, above and beyond in a certain way. Um, you know, I was just fortunate that I was be able to call each and every one of them, like a, a coach at, at a point okay. in my career, you know? Right. So you gave them all props. So now, who's your favorite? I mean, you haven't answered the question yet. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, this is weird, man. Like, the, <laughs> well, it's the just coach. like you said. It's a shoe. Like, what shoe fit best for your foot? Do you know what I mean? It's like it's no disrespect to anybody. Like Conan. The Silver. one that I, the one that I haven't mentioned yet. Who's that? How, Howard Davis Jr. The, who was in my corner? He was like my boxing coach, and I just we just got along real good and he always howard uh, howard davis is uh, you know is die davis's father uh, you know african-american guy and he would always call me he always called me his white son he, he i mean i don't know why he just would say that out of the blue and then he would always just i don't know he just took a real liking to me and we always got along real well and thing i don't know i just like i had a great relationship with howard i mean it was just uh like that was that i mean like i had a great relationship with him and i got along with greg jackson really really well greg's got this real gift though what greg connects with everybody i mean greg is like just the most you know affable personable guy he connects with everybody um you know so it, it was like those two guys i had a real a real good connection with for sure you know with howard davis for people who may not know you're not talking about a slap he's an olympian yeah, you're talking about gold medal boxing uh, coach, you know. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Howard Davis is special. Three times, and, and rest well. yeah, and rest in peace, also to Howard. Yeah. Okay, so uh, do you have any Hector Lombard stories from the American <laughs> Cup? He's even our favorite guy. Even if they're secondhand, come on, you, come on, bro. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, okay, there you go. I mean, you know, if we're going to start, if we're going to go down that route, then definitely. I mean, who doesn't have a Hector Lombard story if we're going to go that route? I guess one time I heard, because, you know, I still would talk to Mike Brown and some of the guys from ATT. I see them around. I guess one, well, too, uh, or Jay-Z Calvin, as he's known in, in, in Japan. I don't know. But anyhow, um I guess one day they were at the, they were in the, in the, they were getting ready for sparring at ATT. Now, um, I guess Hector went up to Jay-Z. I mean, Hector, again, is like what? 205, right? Is what he fought at 205. 205, 185, but he's huge. Jack. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Jay-Z is, is like 55 or, um, Jay-Z's wrapping his hands and they're talking. Jay-Z's not even looking. 
at Hector really. They're, he's talking, but you know, he's he's wrapping his hand. And then I guess Jay-Z, Hector asked a question. Jay-Z said something and, and then kind of laughed. And I guess Lombard didn't like his joke, so he just drew his fist back and he hit him in the face. That's hard. <laughs> and I don't, I like that, again, that second hand, I forgot who told me that, but Dude, I felt like I guess that's just the way the guy was all the time in the gym. Like he just couldn't really be controlled. He just, you know, I don't know. You know what's so weird about this is I've met him a couple of times just doing the bare knuckle stuff, and he's always been the nicest guy in the world to me. I don't know what it is. He's like, "Hey, Chris," he starts talking like, "Aren't you supposed to be a lunatic?" But he's always nice to me. I don't get it. I don't uh, that's the other thing. I think I've met him in passing a few times. Yeah. Great guy. I mean, yeah, so, I'm like, stories. Yeah. Okay. Well, here. What about Tiago Silva? See, here's the thing with the ATT stuff. I, I'm like, I kind of made my exit right when all the crazy stuff started going on. Like for me, <laughs> it's Jeff Monson stories. And man, I, I am not kidding you guys. We got to do a whole separate podcast if we're going to do Jeff Monson stories. Because I've got hours of stuff, like just hours. I mean, because you got to remember, no, you guys got to remember, I was with Jeff at AMC for three years. Ooh. Then I was with Jeff at, at a, uh, ATT for four years. So hey, hey, Chris, I've got more Jeff Monson stories than anybody. Hey, Chris, do you, know, do you know what we refer to this as? A cooperating witness. That's what we refer to this as. <laughs> an investigation we have to get to the bottom. We, we might have an investigation on Monson. It's 100% accurate. Um, we got we got uh, Alex Davis in an interview, and he uh, he he told the Munson story about the Wizenator. But I got a feeling you're going to tell a little more racy story. So why don't you hit us with one? Just one. Let's see. Gosh, man, I don't even know where to start with Jeff. I, I, like, I, can, uh, I can give one that is a common story just to get you 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 thinking. Uh, I, was the gears I, I was a matchmaker of a Jeff Munson fight in Brazil, and Aaron was on that show too. Aaron also fought down there. Yep. And, uh, you know, Jeff was married and he bought his girlfriend with him to Brazil. And yep. not, not his wife. No, not his wife. And that's okay. that's the problem because he left her at home on accident. Because, you know, at some point we are videotaping the fights. It's not like it was televised ah. or anything like that, but we're videotaping the fights. And he brings his girlfriend in and introduces her to the Brazilian crowd as his wife. So. <laughs> doesn't go well for him after that but anyway that's the kind of nonsense we're about to hear i think <laughs> well yeah he would always do stuff like that but one of the things <laughs> that i remember like i distinctly remember too was jeff got me hooked up with a great chiropractor like there was a chiro that he like well, well okay i gotta tell this story to lead into that story so one time i was supposed to pick jeff up from the airport luckily he was on time for a change i mean that's like everybody knows that about jeff you know, he, if you want him there on time, you got to tell him to be there two hours before you want him to be there. Um, but uh, so I picked Jeff up from the airport and I go I go to pick him up and he's just laying on the ground reading the book like at the turn, like like out by the. By ground, Not he's that. like, well, my back went out on the flight and I didn't realize how bad this guy's back would go out, but like. He was like, you got to help put me into the truck. And I was like, uh, okay. So I go to start help, like helping him stand up off the ground. But he's like, no, 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 you got to, like, I'm like having to like pick the guy up like a baby and like put him into the car. And it's, in case you guys, you know, you guys know how big Jeff Monson he's is. He's huge. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, we we talked a little bit about that Abu Dhabi trip. I don't know if you remember. My brother was there with us, helping yes. out. And and my brother was there. He actually had to ride, and Jeff lay on the floor in front of him in his seat because he couldn't sit for that long of a, of a trip. So my brother actually put his feet on his back. That, yeah, that, that's <laughs> flying around and stuff. Wow. But uh, but what happened was I, I so Jeff's like you got to take me to the Cairo. So I take Jeff to the Cairo. And, and uh, I just drop him off and then he gets picked up by somebody else and whatever, whatever. But the, like the guy's fine the next day. He's walking. He's completely fine. I'm like, damn, I got to give this Cairo like a, a look, you know. So anyway, Jeff's like, yeah, sure. Next time I go, I'll bring you. I'll take you over there. And I was like, OK, cool. So we're in, we're, we're in his car and uh, we're driving over there. And he says something about uh, like, you know, the, the, the brakes are, are really at shot on this car. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, thanks for the heads up, whatever. And um, then we drive into the parking lot of the uh, of the chiropractic office. And, dude, he just, he just straight crashes into a dumpster. Like, <laughs> he's grabbing the emergency brake. And he's, like, trying to – he slows it down from, like, 50 to, like, 25 maybe. But he just plows it straight into a dumpster. And like you bounce, the car bounces up and like, you know, you pitch forward in the seat and I hit the dash. I'm like, Jeff, what the hell? Why'd you do that? He's like, I told you, man, there's no brakes in it. And I was like, okay, cool. And then, um, so then we get adjusted by the chiropractor. Then we're driving back home. And this car is a complete piece of crap. I forget what it is, like a Pinto, like multicolored piece of junk. With like the you know like like the upholstery's torn and hanging and swinging from the seat. I mean, it's complete crap. And um, you know everybody in Florida, South Florida especially. I mean, you know this Escalades, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, yeah. BMWs. <laughs> and Jeff's driving a car with no brakes. So he's like, dude, if we uh, if we hit a car, I'm just gonna get out and run, just so you know. <laughs> and I was like. Sounds Thank logical. You heads okay. up, dude. Thank you. So here we made it home. We made it home in one piece. We made it home in one piece. He drops me off at the gym or something. So, dude, then like a like a month later, I, I see Jeff pull up and look. He went out of town, probably chasing a girl, whatever. Comes back in the town in a completely new vehicle. And he comes in. And I was like, Jeff, what uh, what happened to your old car? And he just said, Oh, I uh I sold it to one of the Brazilians. <laughs> I, I don't know, some Brazilian, I guess, had a car that no brakes. Who knows what happened? But, wow. Just, you know, it's always something with Jeff, man. Like, but yes, as far as the as far as the girlfriend stuff, yeah, he was all over the world. He like I I don't there, he had this elaborate scheme where he was like buying postcards from other countries, but then he would mail them somehow to where it made it look like he was in England, but he was really down the road, like with some other girl, and he was mailing them to his wife throughout the week or something throughout the month and he would stay with his girlfriend I, he did he was always doing something so you had mentioned that you trained up with Militich for a while yeah Remember how that. was the uh okay so the rumor i'm from chicago that would always come from that area was that it was an absolute shark tank and that the minute you got there they really tried to hurt you like there wasn't a lot of learning like on your first few days there you know, um, I could maybe agree with that. <laughs> they um, they weren't so bad with me. I didn't feel like. I mean, believe when I sparred with Pat, though. I mean, we would try to just knock each other out. So I mean, like I could I could hold my own like fairly well. Like Horn, 
like we would go hard. I like, yeah, I mean, we would go at each other, man, pretty good. I remember one night, um, I saw I saw Horn choke out Rick Gravison. That's an old old school guy. Like I bet, like I, you guys, yeah, you guys have been around, man. You guys might yeah. remember that name from the uh, Stream Challenge guy. I saw one night Horn caught him and like like the latest time was an arm triangle and Horn put it and he said tap tap and Gravison said nah no way and so Horn yeah. just put him to sleep. That he said that was the third time that night he had put Gravison out. Like I just happened to be standing there for it. That was the third time he did it in one practice, man. I think was it Graveson, a Wisconsin guy? What's that? I, I know I met him in Wisconsin. I'm not sure. If, I, I thought Graveson may have been from that state. Uh, he lived in Iowa when I was there. Um, okay. I mean, Strasser was a Wisconsin guy, I think, right? Yeah. And maybe Adrian Serrano. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's very interesting stuff there. Militich is another one of those guys like Hume Militich. You know, they fought actually, you know. But uh, yeah, but yeah, you you really had access to some of the of the of the greats out there and stuff. So, uh, Mike, what do you got? Nah, man, dude, this guy's answered everything. What about what about Conan Silvera? What was your opinion of him as a coach? I, you know, I didn't really get coached by Conan so much because you know. Okay. I, uh, when I first got to ATT is went right after the, uh, I guess we'll just call it the incident, right? Where him and his brother went away on a hiatus okay. for a little while from MMA. So, um, you know, Conan had already gone away by the time I made it to ATT. His brother was on some kind of a weird, like suspended type thing where his brother hung out for about a year and a half after I got there. Then his brother went away for some time. Then he came back later. Um, that yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the federal process. That, like yeah. you, you, you plead guilty and then you wait, 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 wait. And then you do your time. It's, it's weird. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it, I might be speaking out of context here, but I'm going to say it anyway. That guy got set up both him and his brother, 100%. I've read a few of the court documents. They okay. were set up through yeah. and through. They got set up. I know nothing about it, honestly. I know nothing about it. Guys at the gym back then would speculate on it. And, yeah. that, you know, they were like, oh, you know, we don't really know what happened. Oh, we think maybe they were just, like, looking for some adventure in their life and wanted to, like, they don't know. I mean, I don't know anything I, about it. I, I respect it. Conan is, like, one of my my favorite old school guys. Like, you know, you got Harold Howard. You got Tank Abbott. Like, I really love that era of fighting. And, and, and Conan, I, I hold – with great reverence, both as a coach, fighter, and as a person. And we, Chris and I had the, man, the incredible opportunity to interview him uh, about a month, month and a half ago. And he gave us a phenomenal interview. Like he came in with his wife and kid and it was like, <laughs> I hear Portuguese and he's telling them, I'm not spending more than 15 minutes here. Don't worry. And I'm like, I look at Chris and I'm like, all right, let's go through the questions. And by about the fifth question, he told his wife and child, I'm doing this whole interview. So, I mean, I, I was incredibly gracious to to uh, have that opportunity. So I, I, I really, he's one of my favorites. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. He, you know, I didn't have a lot, like tons of experience with him, but w what I did, you know, he, he was, he was a good dude. And I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I, I have to say from the time I was at ATT, it, it was funny because when I was at ATT, those guys had been around fighting in the sense of they were around it in Brazil, but they were all jujitsu guys first. Okay. The, and I had been trained by Matt Hume at this point. So I already kind of knew about mixing 
martial arts pretty well because I had spent three years with Matt before I went to ATT. So sometimes Laborio would want to do stuff and I would kind of maybe kind of speak. Well, I didn't like argue with him in front of people, but I just mean sometimes privately I'd be like, hey, Laborio, this is a dumb idea. Why do you want to do this? And then he was like, ah, oh, no, that's what we were going to do because I said and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they had some some really weird ideas in the early stage, but I think that those guys have really rounded themselves out as, as, as great <clears throat> MMA coaches now. But man, in the early days, we kind of were winging it and figuring it like on the fly. Um, there were some stuff that used to go on sparring wise that you just think, oh, my God, like I'm glad that that stuff doesn't go on anymore. Some people may die. <laughs> but Miguel, do you know what we're ignoring? We are completely ignoring Benji Raddick, Dennis Hallman, and the hijinks that must have took place in Washington. I mean, he gave us some Monson stuff, but I hung out with Benji Raddick at one of Randy Greenman's shows the uh, in, in Belleville, Illinois. That's a cool dude, man. That's a cool guy. I like Benji a lot. Benji's good people. There was the Benji. I think he was cornering somebody here in Costa Rica, and in the after fight party, uh, DT took a die. He, he, he didn't make it in the after fight party. He, he took one of these and fell down. And the reason I bring it up is because if you remember, uh, Aaron will remember Mario Rinaldi, right? Oh, yeah. Now, Rinaldi was about five six and five six, you know, 270. <laughs> Walked by. With one hand, grabbed Benji. Benji was 200 pounds, you know, big. One hand, grabbed him by the belt, and just lifted him up like a suitcase and walked off with him, man. <laughs> that was that was a lot, one of the last times I saw Benji, I think. <laughs> Do you keep in touch with those guys? I have not talked to uh, Holman or Raddick in, in quite a while, but through, like, mutual friends, I you know, I can kind of keep up and hear what's going on with them. I mean, um, yeah, I haven't seen those guys in a while, but we gotta uh, get Holman on here. Yeah, oh, if you want some stories, man, you guys better a lot like five hours if you want to get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're we're three hours in. Were you at the Ooh. Benji Raddick fight where he fought the ex boyfriend of a girl he was seeing? No, I saw that. That like, man, it's weird. I kind of miss, like, I kind of like missed out on a couple of the things, like by by like a couple months here and there. But yeah, that was ugly. I mean, I saw the video of that and I remember when it happened and man, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of, that was bad. I felt bad for Benji on that, man, because I, I he was, that, So let me give you a little hindsight and in, in my information might be wrong. Benji's dating a girl, ex-boyfriend says, I can beat him up, I can beat him up. Benji takes a fight outside of the UFC where he is a top prospect um, I think the contract for the guy, and I might be off, is like $1 to show, $30,000 to win, and the guy knocked out Benji, like, with the first punch. Uh, well, yeah, Benji I, How was far like, off am I? And I'm going back from my a 15-year-old memory. I don't know about monetary stuff. I think there was a thing about, like, a dollar. I don't know if they paid him thirty grand. They might have paid him, like, 1500 bucks or, like, a couple thousand or five thousand. It was up know. there. It was up there. I mean, because I know they definitely didn't expect him to win. But I remember what <laughs> happened was Benji was like showboating like so bad. Like he put Floyd Floyd Mayweather to shame with the showboating he was doing. And 
he like leg kicked the guy and then dropped his hands and was just sticking his face out. And I think it was like off of a leg kick, the guy just kind of like blindly just threw a straight, a straight right. And man, he just got him right in the jaw. It was so ugly. Man, yeah. I, think, I think the only other correction is I, I, I don't think it was an ex-boyfriend in any way, shape, or form. I think it was a current boyfriend. Yeah, I think Don't it was a new girl. boyfriend. Yeah, think about it, maybe. Like, okay. like yeah. the, the dude was still dating a girl, and Benji had him um, got in there a little bit and got mm. threatened. They threatened to beat him up and stuff. So he had emotion on his side. But <laughs> the, the, the thing about it is Raddick was genuinely a prospect. And, and, and the problem yeah. with, with it is – is that this is all psychological now, you know what I mean? And he really, I think that's where, where you know, that affected him. Yeah. So, but there's a lot of crossover stories with, with uh, Dennis Hallman and Jeff Monson. Real quick for you, a couple of them. Like Jeff, mm-hmm. they, they would always like battle with Jeff back and forth. And Jeff, I mean, Hallman would just try to do the most, like, you know, crazy, nasty. Like they got like a dirty baby diaper from one of uh, Dennis's kids. And they got like a like a, a broom handle, and I like shoved it way down in Jeff's seat, so that he like wouldn't know where it was coming from, and just like the stink was driving him nuts, and he couldn't figure it out. They they broke in his car one day when he was at work, when he used to work as like a state psychologist or something somehow or another. They pulled the seats out of his car, they unscrewed them and took them out, and he had to like put a five gallon bucket in his car and drive home, sitting on that. Um, God they, damn. They said they caught a possum and they set it loose in his car one time. And then he, oh, <laughs> cool. Wow. But the, the best, the best thing that they ever did, in my opinion, was uh, Jeff was gone and his wife was gone. And somehow or another, they stole his keys or they, they knew a way into his house or whatever it was. Dennis used to surround himself with like lots of like little follower guys. So Dennis got, you know, several of his uh, like, you know, disciple MMA followers they grabbed uh, Monson's entire living room suit, his like his sofa, his love suit, his like easy chair, <laughs> his uh, entertainment center, his TV. They hold, they had a ladder or something. They hold all of it onto the roof of Jeff's house. And then they arranged it in the exact same order that it was in his house. <laughs> and then he got home that day from work and he saw his entire living room suit on the roof of his house. Wow. <laughs> That's elaborate. That's too much time. Uh, it's very dangerous. It's funny because it, the, the funny thing dangerous. is, if, if I know Jeff, Jeff is going to be like, first of all, you know, freak it out. But then he's probably going to call Holman for help. Like, he does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or just go sit up there. No. Yeah. 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 That's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you, Aaron. Dude. Thank you very much. Aaron, love you, brother. Aaron, man, what a pleasure. Aaron, we can't thank you enough. I know we've taken three hours of your day. Um, Hopefully it's been as fun for you as it has been us. Go down memory lane. Uh, True legend, pioneer of the sport. Uh, One of the guys everybody always wanted to see fight for a reason because you always, uh, the name of the game is entertainment. You definitely did that. So appreciate it and thank you. All right, man. Thank you guys for having me. It was a blast going down memory lane and, uh, you know, I'd love to do it again sometime. It was fantastic. Hey, brother, I got one kind of semi-serious question to close here because we've been asking. Uh, we recently did Keith Wisniewski and Steve Berger, and those are guys, you know, similar cloth <clears throat> to you there. So looking back at it, in training and in fighting and stuff, you got two broken jaws. How many concussions do you think you got? 
Not really sure. I mean, I'll I'll tell you, Keith Keith said 150 because they trained hard, but he figured <laughs> he had about 150 concussions. And Berger, I asked him over under a 10, and he said over. Okay, uh, over under. I don't. I'm not a good judge of that in the sense of I really don't know what 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 measuring stick we're using to measure because I've heard I have heard that every time you get hit and you see stars or you see light, a flash of light. That's a that's a minor concussion. If that's the case, I don't know. Maybe I have thousands. I mean, yeah. no, man, you get the you? white flash, white flash. What is it? It affected you? No, I mean, I feel like I. Uh, no, I mean, like on it, like no, I don't feel like it's affected me at all. I mean, I don't feel like my speech patterns have dropped off. I mean, no, oh, no next week, I'm not going to be able to do math yeah. or talk and slobber on myself. But like, dude, I mean. So far, cumulatively, it seems like it has not. I've just been fortunate that I've not been affected in any way that I'm noticeably by any of it. I did go to the Cleveland Clinic uh, in Vegas. They are they are or whatever that study through the Cleveland yeah. Clinic where they were studying the brain stuff. I went to them initially one time. I think I did a follow up with them a few years later. I would love to reconnect with them, but I'm not really in Vegas anymore and whatever and whatever. I would love to follow up with them and see like the, you know, the, the, uh, the, well, the longitudinal study, they call it, I guess, when it's over that course of time, I would love to see if I've dropped off or I've done worse or just whatever. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I still am able to speak, add, and kind of remember some stuff from the past. You saw earlier, I could kind of remember mm -hmm. dates and Man, whatnot. Man, it's crazy. So, no, you do. I'll tell you the same thing I told Steve, dude, you're doing great. And that's a good thing, you know, some guys weren't that lucky, but don't miss an opportunity if you can reconnect with the clinic or whatever it is. Don't miss an opportunity to help yourself because when you were fighting, you didn't learn head movement until late, you know, help yourself now. You didn't back then, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't really, I mean, I really just grapple these days. I know that, uh, I know that Lido is familiar with that uh, nice guy submission crew, Bobby and, and Dave and the crew. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I really just do a lot of grappling these days, man. I don't really look to go out and get my brains, you know, you can't unscramble uh, scrambled eggs. So I kind of yeah. try and, uh, you know, keep that sparring at a very, uh, like a real minimum. I don't really do much of that these days. So do you, do you own a gym now? No, no, I, I'm just, I'm actually going to school right now. Uh, maybe look, looking to get involved in maybe, maybe being a, like a teacher uh, uh, or, you know, awesome. is what I'm kind of leaning towards. Um, you know, so I got to be able to like keep some stuff halfway in order. You said I guess, you're a nice. You you said nice guy. That's Joe Bays, isn't it? Joe Bays. Yeah, yeah. Joe and Warren Brooks. Uh, you know, are, are uh, like they started. So you're back like, in Indiana. Yeah, back back. I'm actually in Evansville right now. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So Bobby Evans and those guys. What's that, Chris? Bobby Evans and those guys. Yeah, yeah. They kind of inherited the gym, or they kind of stepped up and took it over when Joe and Warren like weren't kind of doing it anymore or they were ready to take a break or whatever. And now it's, yeah, now it's Bobby and, and Dave and man, they're, they're really doing big things. Bobby's competing yeah. in some really big grappling in EBI and, and a yeah. lot of big grappling matches, man. Those guys are really solid and they're really doing some good things. So you've been trained by some of the greatest fighting minds that the world has, has seen. I mean, you, you really have, you've had that fortunate opportunity. It kind of makes me sad that you're not taking a little bit from all of these places 
and kind of planting a flag somewhere. And, you know, and, and I, I just, I would love to see that. Like it's, and that's my respect for you. You know, that, that's where it comes from. Well, thank you. I mean, I did have like a small, like when I was in Northern Virginia, I was kind of coaching guys and we had some real success. Uh, we had some very good, you know, we kind of, we had, there was a strong established amateur scene in, in Northern Virginia. They utilized full pro UFC rules, which was the funny thing, but um, we, uh, we had some really good success. Um, I moved away from Virginia, came back to Indiana, uh, you know, about four years ago or so. But, you know, I love helping the guys at Nice Guys. So maybe, you know, there is, there are, there is a guy that's fighting, I think, at like 135, 145, uh, uh, named Nathan Manis. He, he, oh, he oh yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, He's good. Yeah. So, you know, we've got guys that are UFC caliber that are coming through in training at Nice Guys. So, you know, they're looking at doing some bigger things here in the future, like as far as like, uh, Jim Wise. So I don't know. I mean, I'm connected with those guys. So maybe we'll, you know, I'll kind of sort of be doing things there. Yeah. So Nathan Manis, uh, Chris and I work for B2 Digital, B2 Fighting. Uh, and uh, Nathan Manis came up through our system. So he well, came he up through our system. He had a fight for us right before he went to the big show. So. He, he had like okay. three fights for us. Got yeah. the title and uh, got the call from one of our shows. And uh, so, we're, yeah, we're real familiar with them. Yeah, you guys got you guys got a lot going on for sure, yeah. for sure. Cool. Well, Aaron, man, always a man, absolute pleasure. And you know, we we took over three hours of your time, and we sincerely <laughs> appreciate it, man. Thank you. Hey, I just had a good time. I had a good time chatting and just reliving those stories with you all, man. Yeah, thanks, cool. Aaron. You definitely walked down memory lane. It was definitely good, and uh, you know, one of those things where it's like I I owe you a lot, man. Thank you very much. <laughs>